Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Yesteryear, Ballyhoo Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo gives you quite the picture from quite the director and quite the star. In the realm of human drama, the golden age of Hollywood possessed many films that transcended the realm of melodrama into something far grander and far more involving. Sentimental screen fare? perhaps in some cases, but our picture this evening stands in the great light as one that will tear your heart apart and rebuild it with earned sincerity and bravery through the glory of Olivia de Havilland. Within today's picture, you will not only get the emotional triumph on screen, but in the real world as well, as we sit back for Mitchell Lyson's 1946 emotional experience to each his own. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. Well, it's sweet of you to hang around, but you don't want to get mixed up with a guy like me now. I'm here to talk business, Mac. Are you kidding or crazy? I'm out of business. $5,000 for bail, $10,000 for my lawyer. My entire stock smashed. Cleaned out. Yes, you're out of one business, but you've got another. Come here. These things work, you know. With wax and lanolin and perfume and that, you've got cold cream. That's the machine that puts it in a jar. Those jars you can sell. Who wants to sell cold cream? You're talking to a guy that's made rot gut for two bucks a quart and sold it for 15. You'll be getting a dollar ten for something you make for four cents. No police raids, no bail, no lawyer's fees. Takes money to start a business. I've got a hundred bucks left in my pants. I've got twenty. With what you've got, will that make a hundred? Yeah. For a hundred dollars, you can make two thousand jars. You're the best salesman I know. You can sell those jars in a day. Yeah, and then? We make 30,000, then 100,000. I've got a friend named Daisy Jingles who'll go in with us. I've called a wholesale supply house. It stays open till midnight, but no deliveries. Here's a list of the stuff we need. Pick it up. And here's my $20. You're not thinking of starting now. Well, the sooner you start, the sooner you'll have something to sell. Well, now, wait a minute. We've got to eat. Get some hamburgers. These things are filthy. They've got a scar off. Go along. Hurry up. I thought I was a go-getter. Jody, why are you doing this? With somebody I love. I've got to make money in a hurry, Mac. The guy in the scrapbook? Yes. I'd like to get a hold of him and kick his teeth in. Please don't, Mac. They're such little teeth. He's only 16 months old. He's my son. 
Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. In 1946, Olivia de Havilland returned to the screen after three long years by signing a two-picture deal with Paramount Pictures. She was placed into a project that would finally give her the acting moment she had long deserved with the help of Mitch Lyson's direction and a stellar script from Charles Brackett that would prove to mirror her own triumphs off-screen in the most fascinating of ways. But why was Olivia de Havilland gone from the screen so long? Why would her bright return to the land of film be such a triumph? Well, we shall tell you the tale today, but we cannot talk about Olivia de Havilland without talking to a person named Olivia. It's Movie Land Law. Luckily, we at the Bally who know an Olivia more than fit for this discussion. She is a writer, director, author of poetry, and among the most determined women working in film today, whose work can be experienced most recently with her wonderful book of poetry, A Guide to ha- a How-To Guide on Surviving Your First Bee Sting. Please welcome to the Bally who Olivia Carmel. Wow, what an introduction. Thank you. And I stumbled over it, so I'm sorry. (laughs) No, that's okay. I mean, it was fairly noticeable that you stumbled. I was just in awe of all the wonderful things you said about me. Thank you. Oh, well, it's it's all said with sincerity, Olivia. Now, yeah, here's the here's the thing. You you are not uh, uh, unfamiliar to podcasting with me. You were on the Shamley Silhouette talking about Alma Revel, the glorious Alma Revel, uh, yeah, and uh, her contributions to the world of cinema. And um, and you endured my Hitchcock impression, uh, which is not really an impression so much as an imitation of that action figure I have sitting on my <laughs> on my desk. So <laughs> thank you for giving us that yeah. insight because. That ended up being like, I I love each and every one of those episodes with a passion, but that one meant a lot to me because of the fact that we got to talk about a a figure in Hitchcock's history that has a definite knowledge base for most people, but uh, Mm -hmm. being able to kind of give her a platform was a lot of fun. Um, and, yeah. uh, and, and within that, we talked a lot about a lot of, about a lot of serious issues that will actually not all of them will come back up today, but there is a, uh, a key part of this that will come back to the forefront. But you are now new to the Ballyhoo review, though. So I want to get people oh. who haven't listened to Shamley uh, a chance to get to know you. So you are a filmmaker and a an author of poetry, which already puts you in this top tier league of like she can do anything like <laughs> give. <laughs> Give her, give her, give her a plane to fix, and she'll be like, "Yeah, I'll fix that plane." <laughs> you know, like anything. <laughs> I'd try at least. Yeah. So, um, but yes, you you have what what got you into filmmaking? Oh goodness! Well, I think I share a similar story to a lot of um, people that are in this world now. Um, I, when I was young, picked up my family's video camera. And just started making movies with my friends. Um, And I even had like a film camp and a theater camp in my backyard as a kid um, that I put together. Very, very funny. Um, And then, yeah, I mean, I didn't really, I'll be honest, I didn't really consider it something that I would pursue as a career really until my would say like last year of college and even then I was sort of still looking at it as I don't know I I guess I was just it was just an interest a newfound interest and really what happened was I I'm a doer so when I was taking I was a writing major in college and when I was taking a 
screenwriting class and writing all these screenplays, I figured, well, I should make something into a film. I should take it all the way to completion. And so I tried that and I had some, some, some professors who kind of saw me doing that and um, also supported an independent study my senior year to, to just literally make films. <laughs> They're all bad. I'll probably never show anyone, but, um, but they were really great experiences and uh, really gave me a foundation in this form of storytelling. And I fell in love with it. And really after, after college, um, I transitioned to uh, producing very quickly. Um, I was invited onto one of my professors, two of my professors actually filmed that they were working on. Um, they'd received a grant for the award-winning play that my, um, my advisor, um, Chris White had, had written. And she then, uh, translated it into a screenplay. And so we were producing that into a short film mm -hmm. called Mud Lotus. Um, so that was really the first pro like real project I would say that I worked on, um, on that crew, I met some really important people that became really mentors to me in the industry. And I continued working with them on other projects, um, both narrative and commercial. And then really from there, I, I just continued, um, working, I guess, in, in the industry and even peripheral, peripherally in the industry when I was, you know, maybe on staff somewhere else, it was always something I was working on. So, um, yeah, that's really like my story about how I got here, I guess. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> it, it sort of found me, I yeah, guess. Well, you were actually you, I mean, one of the first times I'm, I, I believe the first time I met you was actually you, uh, already pursuing projects of different sorts. And, um, we got to know each other on through real nerds podcast and yeah. the, um, uh, not too long after actually you were throwing together, a um, uh, a, a work, uh, a, a screening session that I uh, attended and, um, I got to see, uh, I believe some of your work, but also one from our mutual friend, Zach Gutierrez, um, yes. who, um, I've known, I knew him, from the moment I stepped foot into um, my film school that I went to out of uh, out of high school. And um, uh, I had known him for years and I, I got to reconnect with him at your, uh, uh, at your, uh, at your birthday gathering um, that we did. And yeah. the, the, um, uh, the, the, the amount of time that he and I had not been in contact really with each other that much, he put together some lovely stuff. And so you, and you keep encouraging him as you do a lot of people around you. I've noticed that you are a very uh, warm and caring person when it comes to making sure that creativity flourishes while pursuing Aww. your, your creative endeavors. And yeah, thank you for saying that. I appreciate that. Well, yeah. And it's, and it's, and it's meant because you do, you, you, you did another thing that has inspired me greatly because you were, your book um, of poetry I, I remember reading it and I was like, this is kind of amazing that somebody who is this young, but also, uh, you know, has so many things on her plate, uh, managed to put something like this out. And it's the only, I think it was one of the only reasons that I felt comfortable to at least broach the idea of writing a book for myself, which is what I'm working on uh, now. It's, I'm not doing poetry because I can't write a, <laughs> I can't write a rhyme to save my life, but. <laughs> 
don't rhyme, Zach. No, no, no. But it just uh, to generalize with poetry, <laughs> the way people view poetry. Um, yeah, but no, yours are actually very meditative and very personal. And uh, yeah. the one of the things that it did inspire me to do was with the book project that I am pursuing is I want to do a film history book where I'm not afraid to stick my own personal experience kind of throughout it as opposed to just in the foreword or the uh, prologue. So that 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 gave me a lot of um, uh, encouragement to try to do something like that. Um, now, here's something I'm going to ask you because you kind of already answered it on the Shamley Silhouette. But again, we're on a new show. And so okay. therefore, you it's 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 like a comic book. Sometimes every every comic book is somebody's first comic book um, it's, uh, said by Mr. Stanley. Um, but uh, you we the person we are talking about today, the primary subject of Olivia mm -hmm. de Havilland um, has a history with you. But I want to know not just that history, but your history with Golden Age Hollywood in general. Oh, um, well, I wouldn't say that I'm as extensively knowledgeable as uh, you or other um, filmmakers even, but I definitely love, love it. Um, and I think the, I think the story you're referring to is, I mean, I, I grew up watching a lot of these movies with my parents and grandparents. Um, and they're some of the first movies I think I saw. Um, you know, we, when we talked about Hitchcock, you know, I shared that really some of the first movies I can remember seeing, um, with my parents were Hitchcock movies mm -hmm. and, you know, still to this day, they're some of my favorite movies, um, because of that, I think. And also, I mean, they're Hitchcock. They're very, very good. Uh, I, I make the best ones. I make that the, <laughs> the film we're talking about today means absolutely nothing. <laughs> 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 but yes and and like yeah he his his movies do stand the test of time and i think that i mean the movie that we're going to talk about today i think even though there are you know dated things within it which we'll get to i think it also just emotionally stands the test of time so yeah i mean that's what i love about these movies and um the other movie that really is important to me and why I wanted to talk about um, Olivia de Havilland with you is my mom's favorite movie is Gone with the Wind. And she actually named me, and not, I guess not after, but my name was inspired by Olivia de Havilland, I would say. Aww. So, yeah. So I feel very, um, I don't know, kind of a close closeness to her yeah. just given that act <laughs> well well i will um first of all i'll, I'll full disclosure to the to our lovely guests here uh, a, a gone with the wind has been a contentious title with me for <laughs> years since yeah. the moment i saw it uh that uh the opinion has evolved into uh even more vitriol however some, <laughs> some something that uh gone with the wind has um in the form of olivia de Havilland is a very, very compelling character in Melanie. Um, now, uh, it's, uh, again, that movie I'm going to be um, not discussing until I've ga gathered an entire <laughs> panel because um, it's not just going to be a one-on-one. -on -one. It has to be a full discussion because of uh, the uh, amount of discussion behind it. It may actually end up being, like, as long as the movie itself. So <laughs> um, it, certainly, it certainly should have that, for sure. It's, yeah, it's, it's you know... Uh, um, yeah, there's a lot to discuss within it, but I mean, I think, I think that 
you know, Olivia herself is just a, such a fantastic actress. And I mean, when I look at the her career, like the length of it mm-hmm. uh, and the success of it, I just am like, well, I hope that in sharing her name, I also in some way share <laughs> that kind of um, success and longevity in my career. Well, I guess uh, I- you're already on track because you're a very brave individual with the things Aww. you accomplish. And Olivia de Havilland was that very person as well. Um, mm-hmm. Needless to say, the the one of the things that uh, the Ballyhoo has started talking about is actually Technicolor. Um, slowly but surely, we're going to be getting to those uh, discussions in full. But um, one title that pops up to my mind the moment I think of Technicolor is Olivia de Havilland um, because of The Adventures of Robin Hood. Um, which is my go-to Olivia de Havilland film normally. Um, really, uh, I didn't know that about you. Yeah, no, it, it's um, I it's I, I don't think uh, uh, Adventures of Robin Hood is in my top one hundred of all time, but that movie is such a fun watch and still works yeah. to this day. Um, it is not. Um, it, it's the Robin Hood movie I tend to go to apart from Robin Hood Men in Tights. Um, it's, it's, it's a film that I think that when, when, when Olivia de Havilland died last year, that was my first thought. It wasn't gone with the wind. And I, and a lot of people were outpouring gone with the wind, but thankfully there was also an equal amount of praise for adventures of Robin hood, because when you watch her, well, there, there's two things about it. One is when you watch her and Errol Flynn together, um, there tends to be this energy on screen and chemistry on screen that I think is rare. Um, uh, that, uh, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Like there, there's just something about it that is very, very, um, uh, uh, unique, uh, in, in that respect. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's one of those things that I, uh, the, the, there's, when you watch her on screen specifically, there is a warmth about her in a, in a role that is also very, very strong and powerful in its own right. Obviously you're dealing with Errol Flynn being your dashing lead hero. And uh, when you watch him in that movie and you watch the things that he does, it makes the relationship with him and Olivia de Havilland in that movie even more grand. And there are moments, there's a moment where, in uh, Adventures of Robin Hood, where he is showing her through the encampment where he and the Merry Men live and all the uh, more poor and destitute people of Nottingham. Uh, and you see her discover the reality of what Robin Hood is doing with helping and assisting the poor. Um, and I think that that's like one of those moments where you get to see her like literally transform a look on screen. And there is a part of me that feels that this movie uh, cranked that up. The movie that we're talking about today cranked that ability up to 11. Um, Because there are moments in To Each His Own where you are watching somebody come to the realization of something very, very uh, profound and deep uh, over the course of the two hours that this movie is. um, are you still there, Olivia? Yes, you're breaking up a lot, and there's a lot of like catch up. So it's like okay, you here. Know, like, it's really fast. 
here's where we're going to, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to hang up and I'm going to call you back. Okay. Okay. All right. A rose must remain with the sun and the rain or its lovely promise So before we get into the discussion of To Each His Own, though, we have to talk about the fact that we saw this film under less than ideal circumstances. So, Olivia, when I pitched um, you being on the show um, yeah. and I gave you a couple titles, this one stuck out to you primarily. Like, I remember your thing is like, I must talk about my namesake. And I'm like, that <laughs> that, uh, that definitely uh, drew, drew some uh, lovely, uh, lovely responses and a chuckle from me. Um, but, yeah. um, uh, you had such like the whole list that you sent me, I was like, this is really hard to choose. So I'm just going to go with my namesake. <laughs> yeah, no. And that's a perfectly reasonable way to go, um, with this, especially because the, the, this is a film that, um, I don't think many people today will have seen. Um, but there might be a reason for that. So we had to watch this film on the internet archive. <laughs> Yeah, uh, there is no available print uh, on DVD in this country. Uh, it is not available on uh, Prime or Vudu or any of the other streaming rental services. So really, we are dealing with a very, very um, uh, 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 not lost film, but just neglected film. Uh, and Which so is very sad because I loved it. We we're dealing with a movie that is an Oscar winning film that has no exposure outside of the realm which it was released in. Now it was released on VHS uh, in uh, in in the early uh, years of VHS, and there was a Region Two uh, DVD uh, available. Um, and it, this seems to be also the same for Hold Back the Dawn. Uh, which is a 1941 film directed by Mitch Lyson, also starring Olivia de Havilland. So uh, it seems like the, the the one of the big films that Olivia de Havilland is known for, we're just having an issue trying to uh, get access to it. Um, so, but as, as, what, before we go into the production of the film and the, and the plot breakdown, Olivia, you, this is a first time viewing for you. Give us a, a brief reaction. <laughs> Well, yeah, so it was a first time viewing for me. And as you told me um, after I selected it, that it was also going to be a first time viewing for you, which was really exciting. Um, for me, I didn't really know what I was getting into. Um, I didn't do a lot of like reading beforehand. Um, didn't really know for some reason, just didn't really know about this role. I think probably because, like you said, it's really hard nowadays to like find this film and be able to watch it so it just was not on my radar enough yeah. um 
so yeah, so I didn't, I didn't really know, but I think whether, you know, I read the little blurb at the bottom once I clicked the link that you sent me mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh, this alone sounds like such an amazing like premise for a story. And then it starts and I'm just like immediately blown away by her acting, her, like there's a magnetism of her on screen that we all know in all of her roles but yeah just really liked it and then um yeah it just was it really struck me I mean I I I thought that it was the performances just really hold up um even today Mm -hmm. and it like I said before there's there's definitely like this story you know, I was almost like, this needs to be remade because it's so good. But then I was like, well, it can't really be remade in like today's context because, right? Because like there's definitely a cultural shift has happened um, that wouldn't make that possible. Yeah, because the the movie we're dealing with it, um, uh, that we're going to discuss deals with uh, the the, uh, the idea of uh, – uh, having a baby out of wedlock um yeah like that's the and the, that's the whole premise of the film and uh i think that if you made it as a period remade it as a period piece it would still work but um you would have to rewrite certain elements of it to right. acknowledge where we've gone in that time right. because exactly you know and, and a lot of this show deals with the fact that like oh a lot of stuff hasn't changed and and when you watch this film it's like well man a lot has actually changed like <laughs> like yeah not, it, yeah it, and that's sort of what struck me that like i was like even though this i mean really wasn't that long ago because i mean olivia de Havilland acted in this and then just recently passed away i mean she lived a very long life but i mean the movie isn't that old and so there has been progress made, you know, mm-hmm. for women in this in this case um, around, you know, just childbearing, I guess, and, <laughs> um, you know, and, and marriage and things like that. But but yeah, but like it's still even with that being said, even with that being true, there's still something about it that resonates. Because I got emotional several times during this movie. And I also, I don't think I told you this, Zach, but I actually watched it with my mother. So, (gasps) yeah. Yeah, so that made it even more special. Oh, God. I watched it alone. (laughs) I'm a monster. (laughs) But But I mean, in a way that like made it... I don't know if that made it resonate more for me because I was sitting next to my own mother and like de Havilland's character, the the whole thing is her being a mother Mm -hmm. and that mother love, that love that a mother has for their child, no matter what, that unconditional love. Like it was so, it's so strong and she plays that so well and so passionately and like just pours her soul into it that you're like, just you feel like you're going through the experience with her and your heart is breaking over and over and over and over again with her. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, (laughs) I think that there's something about that experience as you watch the film that, uh, we'll talk about somewhat the idea of melodrama and whatnot and something to dispel about melodrama is that it shouldn't be taken 
for something lesser than what it is, which is the the way we look at melodrama uh, from this period is no different from seeing a very sincere drama today. We're just using a different label to determine it. But this is right. a, this is a film that, like many melodramas of its era, is able to work with its highs and lows. Uh, in yeah. a very even balance. Not every melodrama of this period does this, and that's why I feel um, it never gets taken as seriously as it should. Um, and uh, Or if you're making a Star Wars prequel, in which case then that's sci-fi <laughs> melodrama, and then everybody gets their panties up in a bunch. But um, the... Yeah, but the but the, th- the big thing about this is that, you know, there's the, the biggest hero of this film... Uh, hands down is Olivia de Havilland and not just because she's the main actress but it's also kind of like about how she got here and we'll kind of tell the story in portions but we're going to begin with we'll we'll start with the fact she's she's born in Tokyo Japan uh, in July uh, in July of 1916 Uh, she uh, had a sister named Joan de De Bevois de Havilland, but you would known her know her as Joan Fontaine or I in Rebecca. <laughs> um, uh, she they're they're um they had a rather um contentious sisterhood, uh, sadly, um, and uh, did not very get along very much. Even though, as we'll find out, Joan Fontaine had um more than enough praise for her sister. Um, regarding one of the most important moments of Olivia's career. Uh, now, so, but I, out of all the people that you would expect to be born in Japan, one one would not be one of the greatest actresses of the year at this time because, so her parents meet in Japan in 1913, um, uh, but the marriage was not happy. Uh, Olivia was born uh, three years after that first meeting, and they moved into Tokyo City, where uh, her mother Lillian was giving informal singing recitals. Uh, and then in 1919, Lillian, the mother, persuaded uh, her husband Walter to take the fam- family back to England for a better climate to sue uh, to soothe her ailing daughters. Um, Olivia was um, uh, suffering from uh, maladies, as was Joan. Um, they actually they were aboard the SS Siberia Maru, uh, where uh, they uh, stopped over to treat Olivia's tonsillitis, and Joan ended up developing pneumonia, um, and so Lillian decided to stay with her daughters in California, where they settled in Saratoga. The father abandoned the family and uh, returned to a Japanese housekeeper that he was keeping busy with, who ended up becoming his second wife. So. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's 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 quite a life. But she, uh, Olivia, grew up to appreciate the arts, beginning with ballet lessons and piano lessons, and then uh, she learned to read before she was six, which was props to her. I I I I, I could still barely read today. Um, and um, uh, her mother actually taught drama, music, and elocution, and she would have her recite passages from Shakespeare to strengthen her diction. Uh, she entered, she entered, um, high school near her home in Saratoga. She excelled in oratory and field hockey. (laughs) So Olivia de Havilland knew how to play some hockey guys right on. She can be part of the, I I bet she was part of the goon squad. She just knocked the shit out of people (laughs) (laughs) out of my way. (laughs) She's a tough lady. So yeah, very tough, a small, tough, but feisty lady. 
And, um, and, uh, she planned to become an English teacher, uh, and she ended up attending the Notre Dame convent in Belmont. In 33, she made her debut in amateur theater with Alice in Wonderland playing Alice, uh, for the Saratoga community players. Uh, and then she would also appear in her school plays. Uh, she graduates from high school in 34 and is offered a scholarship to Mills Miller's college in Oakland to pursue her career as a teacher. Uh, and then she sets on this path until Max Reinhardt comes to town and is putting on a Midsummer Night's Dream for the Hollywood Bowl. Now, this production, Olivia, is kind of legendary because it ends up being transplanted directly into the laps of Warner Brothers Pictures for a full reimagining of a Midsummer Night's Dream with their stock players. Um, Reinhardt's assistant saw her perform in Saratoga and offered her the second understudy position for the role of Hermia. One week before the premiere, the understudy and the lead actress, the lead actress, by the way, was Gloria Stewart or Gloria the Invisible Man Titanic Stewart, uh, left the project and 18-year-old de Havilland played Hermia at the Hollywood Bowl. And the performance uh, impressed Reinhardt so much that she offered he offered her the part for the four-week autumn tour that followed. During that tour, Reinhardt received the word that Warner Brothers would direct the film version of his stage production, and he offered her the film uh, film role of Hermia. And so this is insane. The, the lead, the, or the original cast... Plus the and the first understudy both couldn't do it, and that's what that's like. That's almost like fate. Wait, wait, it, it, I have to wonder, and I need to do more research into this. I because I saw the fact of Gloria Stewart being the lead in this, and I'm like, what, what, what was she doing, like to 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 turn this down? Because Gloria Stewart is an actress who we know today from Titanic, playing older Rose, but she had a quite a career actually working at Universal Studios for the monster movies and working twice at, twice with James Whale and uh, having some form of prominence there, although she did not like Universal Studios or her experience there. She said it was a cheap studio in the boondocks was her <laughs> reference point for it. And I'm like, oh, that's that's mean, Gloria. But um, but anyway, uh, the the production of that film is her entry point into it. Uh, Reinhardt and Henry Blanke had to convince her to put aside her teaching ambitions uh, to then sign a five-year contract with Warner Brothers in uh, November of 1934, starting off at $200 a week. Uh, wow. This would then begin the career that would last over 50 years. During the production of this, she learned from the co-director, William Dieterle, uh, film acting techniques. And then she also learned the camera techniques of the cinematographer Hal Moore. Um, and through the, by the end of this production, Olivia, she knows the effects of lighting and camera angles on an actress. So she knows exactly how she's going to look on screen. Uh, and so therefore is able to uh, position herself better on film. And this is a discussion that has been had before on... Um, the idea of uh, the actresses designing their own lighting. So she already had an intuitive knowledge of it by the end of her first film. That's amazing. That's such a talent. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> it's, it's one that I think that uh, uh, it, it, some stars take it a little too far today, but it is still important to know your worth on screen. 
Um, well, it's and- also, I mean, just having, I don't do on-camera stuff very often at all. Um, I've only really done it as favors for people, but because I don't like seeing myself on camera. But I, it's so, it's so hard <laughs> to get into a role to forget that to get into a role enough that you forget that there are cameras and lights and all these people watching you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also through all, and then to also play off of the other actors, be in the scene, be in the moment, da, da, all the things that acting takes. And then to also think about how to position yourself to look your best. I don't know. That's, that's a lot of things. Like people don't give in some capacities, people don't give actors, models, just people in that, um, in front of the camera, uh, they don't understand all of the layers that that person is, is working with. I don't know. Like it, it does take a lot of skill. I was actually even just watching, um, you know, and then add to that, if there's like a musical element, my goodness, you're also singing. I, I don't know. There's so many things. <laughs> yeah. And there's, el- and there's elements in Shakespeare that require those songs. So there's like, there's definitely this, element of her understanding her value and her worth on screen so if she it's almost like if she's going to give up this teaching career she's going to make the best of this as much as possible yeah um now here's the thing though this production of a midsummer night's dream was um uh, not well received by the audience really uh the critic response was a bit up in the air but de Havilland's performance was praised by amongst others the san francisco examiner and the brooklyn daily eagle uh and among the quotes uh in it uh that she acts graciously and does greater justice to shakespeare's language than anyone in the cast when you read the full review it kind of stands out because they're 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 having to cover a bunch of different areas of this production that has amongst other people james cagney playing puck which is um it's a thing (laughs) It's not a James Cagney movie I go back to for reasons, Olivia. <laughs> now, the thing is, is that Olivia de Havilland uh, kind of uh, gets a, a, a bit of a uh, second chance within this. She is, again, still on uh, contract. She does two more minor comedies with James Cagney. Um, but she ended up getting this huge break in a costume picture called Captain Blood, directed by Michael Curtiz. And starring um, that certain fella uh, from the Tasmania land who would swoon the hearts of every woman in America at the time, Errol Flynn, who is not an actor that has been known yet at this point, breaks through in Captain Blood alongside Olivia de Havilland. And the chemistry is, as the kids say, lit. And uh, <laughs> she, uh, this would be the first of seven films they would make together. Uh, and during this film's production, she renegotiates her contract, uh, with Warner brothers and signs a seven year deal on April 14th, 1936, starting with a weekly salary of $500. Now today, Olivia, that would be $9,200 a week. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, um, maybe. yeah, I'm wondering if Olivia de Havilland can uh, spare some of that change right now. She doesn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, give me some money. <laughs> um, and so, so during around that time, uh, so and she re- and she renegotiates this contract um, uh, following uh, Captain Blood, Anthony Adverse, and the Charge of the Light Brigade. 
um, and another film with Flynn. Uh, so, um, and then she got her first top billing in an Archie Mayo film called Call It a Day, uh, where she plays a middle uh, middle class English family, uh, part of a, she's, She's part of an English uh, family struggling with the romantic effects of spring fever during the course of a single day. Uh, so, uh, so it's a it's a love affair, if you will. Um, and she plays the daughter in that film. Uh, and then she went back into she went she went back into the comedy realm, albeit the screwball realm, with "It's the Love I'm After" with Leslie Howard and Betty Davis. Now, Betty Davis very important to this story coming up because. Betty Davis would lay the groundwork initially that Olivia de Havilland would have to walk on. So one of the big things that Olivia de Havilland is known for is obviously Gone with the Wind. Uh, And um, he, when you talk about Gone with the Wind and Melanie, there's no other person that would be perfect for that role other than her. And David O. Selznick had even written specifically to Warner going, I would give anything if we had Olivia de Havilland under contract to us so that we could cast her as Melanie. Uh, This is a memo to one of his uh, intermediaries. And Olivia de Havilland read the book. She wanted the part. Warner was like, nope, not doing it. No, I knew that this was a contentious moment because Mm -hmm. she wanted to be doing, um, she was getting pickier with her role selections. And this was a choice that she wanted to make for herself, but because of the, um, you know, because of the structure at the time within the industry, she was having trouble. Yeah. But as we come to know her, she's very, um, she's very driven, mm-hmm. very savvy. And um, yes. So <laughs> I'm sure you're getting there, but I just, I just love this about her. Oh, we're getting there. So uh, Jack Warner did relent. And let her be and gone with the wind after De Havilland pled to Jack's uh, wife Anne. Uh, and Jack Warner had this to say about Olivia in uh, in his thoughts. Olivia, who had the brain, who had a brain like a computer concealed behind those fawn-like eyes, simply went to my wife, and they joined forces to change my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, sure. <laughs> oh, Jack, you. Uh, 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 it's it's uh, it, it. Jack Warner is an interesting fella. If you want more information on not just what we're talking about today, uh, from Olivia De Havilland's point of view, but also mainly concerning Jack Warner, you should listen to the Secret History of Hollywood's Bullets and Blood epi- uh, Bullets and Blood episodes, uh, where they talk about the history of Warner Brothers. Now, uh, you are you already pointed to it, Olivia. She was already tr- trying to get better roles. Um. And Jack Warner was, uh, like any other studio executive, they're just putting them in the films that they want to put them in. Um, now, one right. of those one of those wonderful roles that she got, again, was The Adventures of Robin Hood. Um, and uh, in spite of the success of Adventures of Robin Hood, which its success will be talked about in a later episode, um, it did not result in her getting uh, better roles because of it. And Adventures of Robin Hood was a big, big deal for the studio because it established the fact that they could make a quote-unquote prestige piece, uh, like a big production uh, of that of that type. And so uh, the, the, the amount of bullshit that she puts up with with these roles, she manages to make the best of it for a time. She works further with um, uh, Errol Flynn in films like Dodge City, uh, Dodge City, which is a wonderful Western film uh, that uh, is the inspiration for Blazing Saddles. 
uh, in terms of the plot. And so, uh, but uh, again, she makes Gone with the Wind at Jack's, uh, at Jack's relenting. Uh, and in 1940, the year after Gone with the Wind, oh, actually, we should say that she also was in the same year of Gone with the Wind, she was in The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex. Uh, and uh, she was hoping she was hoping that all of this stuff combined would give her more better roles. Um, and that was not the case. She was still getting uh, kicked around. So in early 1940, she starts refusing to appear in films assigned to her. Um, and she got her first of many suspensions at the studio. The only real concession that she makes is for the movie My Love Came Back, um, and uh, where she plays a violinist whose life becomes complicated by the support of a wealthy sponsor. Um, and the same year uh, of 1940, she does reteam with Flynn for their sixth film together, Santa Fe Trail. Now, in the beginning of uh, at the pr- premiere of Santa Fe Trail, De Havilland is not present because she is rushed to the hospital with uh, a bad case of appendicitis. Following her emergency surgery, she had a long convalescence in the L.A. hospital where she rejected a bunch of scripts left and right, leading to more suspension. Uh, and during this time, she still makes some films, but this is where everything gets into the legacy of Olivia de Havilland and her heroism. So first off, before any suspension, she does go over to Paramount for a picture uh, for by Mitch Lyson, Hold Back the Dawn with Charles Boyer. Um, and uh, Lyson, uh, the director, uh, has a very acute eye with melodrama and even comedy at time. Uh, Bosley Crowther, my nemesis, uh, wrote that the actress plays the school teacher as a woman who romantic fancies, uh, who's honest, uh, a, a, a woman with romantic fancies whose honesty and pride are her own and the film's chief support. Incidentally, she is excellent. <laughs> So Bosley Crowther being a snarky asshole once again, but he liked her. So I'm not going to, you know, give him too much crap that this also garnered her, her second of uh, her second nomination for an Oscar. Um, and their final film together that the final film that she would end up. So to have one then reteams with Flynn for their final film, they died with their boots on, uh, which is directed by Raoul Walsh. Um, and, one of the uh, defining films that she would be in, and the only one that she really liked with Warner Brothers, was Princess O'Rourke, uh, written by Norma Krasnow, one of the premier schoolball comedies that ended up winning an Oscar for screenplay. Um, and all these roles, Olivia, that she's been given that don't do her justice, Olivia had this to say, I wanted to do complex roles like Melanie, for example, and Jack Warner saw me as an ingenue. I was really restless to portray more developed human beings. Jack never understood this, and he would give me roles that really no had no character or quality in them. I knew I wouldn't even be effective. So she finishes her contract in 1943. Now here's where it gets interesting, guys. De Havilland is informed by Jack Warner that six months have been added to her contract for the times that she had been suspended. Now, that's bullshit! Hooray! <laughs> uh, because, Olivia, we are dealing with the studio system 
and their idea of how time works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is fucking crazy. House's interpretation of time. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the most ridiculous thing in time. Basically, you're signed to a 7-year contract. 5 to, 1 to 5 to 7 years. Whatever the whatever length of time the studio wants to sign you for. Now, if you get suspended, um, the days that you are suspended are added on to the to the duration of your contract. So if you're off for six months uh, combined, they tack on another six months at the end of the contract. So you're not done with your contract at that point. Now, most of the contract players accept this because it's work. They pay well. It's, uh, it's, it's hard to refuse a high-paying job uh, even at the risk of your artistry. And, um, you know, there are people in the industry today who still work under contracts that are similar, um, but obviously because of what we're going to discuss, they aren't as rigid as this. Um, and she is not the first person to do this at Warner Brothers. Betty Davis lit a fire under Jack Warner's ass uh, to, <laughs> um, to have herself removed for a contract. Her case got taken to the UK. It was dropped, and Betty Davis had to go back uh, head in hand uh, to Warner Brothers, where Jack Warner, respecting the fact that she stood up to him, gave her much more challenging roles and allowed her to flourish. Um, so it almost seems like I don't think Olivia was necessarily uh, looking at Betty Davis's case per se, but she did seek the advice of her lawyer, Martin Gang, uh, and she filed lawsuit against Warner Brothers in Los Angeles Superior Court. Uh, seeking a declaratory judgment that she was no longer bound by the contract on the grounds of an existing section of the California Labor Code that forbade an employer from enforcing a contract against an employee for longer than seven years from the date of first performance. So from the moment you start to the moment it's done, not uh, adding time, you know, for silly reasons like suspension. Um this case is then taken in 1943 to the Superior Court, finding it into Havlin's favor, and Warner Brothers immediately repeals or appeals. Uh, and then a year later, the California Court of Appeal in the Second District still ruled ruled in her favor. This is one of the landmark decisions in Golden Age Hollywood history. The decision has now become known as the De Havilland Law. The decision was was that as such, you would basically work your contract period. You can't add more time. This cost her over $13,000 in legal fees, and she, in return, gained the respect and admiration of her peers, including her estranged sister, uh, who Joan Fontaine said of her sister, oh, Hollywood owes Olivia a great deal. Uh and Warner Brothers decided to retaliate uh, with this uh, on this lawsuit by circulating a letter to the other studios that had the effect of virtual blacklisting. And so, um, but the consequences is that two years go by before De Havilland gets to work at another studio. In this time, she then becomes a naturalized citizen on November 28, 1941. Uh, that uh, so, in this time, she's had a lot of things happen to her. In 43, after these decisions are made, she joins a USO tour that travels throughout the U.S. and the South Pacific, visiting military hospitals. Um, she then also gains the respect of the military men overseas. She survived flights in damaged aircraft and a bout of viral pneumonia requiring many days 
in one of the island barrack hospitals. Her recollection on this was that she loved doing these tours because it was a way I could serve my country and contribute to the war effort. After the appeal ruling freed her from Warner Brothers, de Havilland signs a two-picture deal with Paramount Pictures. And in 1945, she begins filming To Each His Own with Mitch Lyson at the uh, helm. De Havilland is the one who want, wanted Lyson in as director, trusting his eye for detail, his empathy for actors, and the way he controlled sentiment in their previous collaboration, Hold Back the Dawn. Um, and this is coming from one of the sources from de Havilland's biography. There are a lot of de Havilland biographies out there, all telling this wonderful, courageous story. Um, now she had to age over the course of this film. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, there are, uh, uh, elements of makeup combined with the ability for, um, uh, her adjusting her voice. So she would start lowering the pitch of her voice incrementally throughout each like consistent decade that this film takes place. So this is a powerhouse performance. And this is around the time that she starts, uh, reading the Stanislavski autobiography, My Light and Art, My Life and Art, which gives her the methods for achieving that uh, that reality. Um, now, before we go into To Each His Own, we'll talk a little bit about Mitchell Lyson, the director. Mitchell Lyson is um, an undersung legend uh, when it comes to directors. Uh, he's born in uh, Menominee, Michigan uh, in, 19, uh, in 1898, and he is not uh, thoroughly biography. Uh, there's no thorough biography on Mitchell Lyson. Um, what we have are his films. He is primarily known for his melodramas and screwball comedies. And when you look at the list of the films he's made, um, you you'll find one that you like. The first one I remember seeing was the big broadcast of 1938, which is Bob Hope's big break in film, where he sings "Thanks for the Memories" for the first time. One of the big films that he did, Olivia, is the Fred McMurray film uh, Remember the Night with Barbara Stanwyck, which is a wonderful Christmas time movie. Um, and he then does, does Hold Back the Dawn, The Lady is Willing, Lady in the Dark, Frenchman's Creek, Practically Yours, Kitty with Ray Milland and Paulette Goddard, Masquerade in Mexico, and then we get To Each His Own. Um, Lyson is also... He's. It's interesting because he had. He started off as a costume designer, and something that I found interesting in the research is that he still continued to supervise and design the costumes in his films, even as he was a director. So he was always a. Uh, he had this eye for detail that very few filmmakers possess. Like, I mean, Hitchcock falls in the same league of a license where they are very focused on these subtler details, um, and. Love that. And so, and actually, when you watch the film and the way it plays out within the costume level, it is interesting how everything feels appropriate and right. Like nothing feels like it's off, off the cuff. Um, and on that note, we'll jump into the plot of uh, Two to Each His Own. First of all, directed by Mitch Lyson, screenplay by Charles Brackett. Uh, Charles Brackett, who uh, is a a screenwriter who's had previous discussion points um, on the To Be or Not to Be episode. Uh, he's one of the prolific screenwriters uh, of the era, uh, making su making such wonderful films as Ninochka. Uh, and the Charles Brackett is 
a writer that I think knows how to touch the human heart in a very sincere way that doesn't always exist. But he also knows how to scare the crap out of you, Olivia, because he also did Sunset Boulevard, which I would argue is a wonderful horror movie. <laughs> uh, hey, I yeah. didn't know that he wrote this and that. That's interesting. Yeah, this is this, this is. Different. <laughs> it's the gamut that he runs. He uh, actually did uncredited rewrites on The Bishop's Wife, which is a very big Christmas time movie. And one of his Oscars uh, or one of his one of his big uh, film breaks um, or his big film triumphs is The Lost Weekend, which he does with Billy Wilder. He worked with Billy Wilder a lot. So um, that's called range right there. Being yeah. Able to those different genres it's it's crazy and you had to be able to know that as a writer in the studio era in order to you know keep working you had to right. be able to, and that's why hollywood films of this era feel so um uh all not all over the place but like there, there's a range to them is because you're tr you're dealing with writers who know how to punch up a certain scene or play down another scene you there's a range right. that everything runs by um it's why melodrama works interesting because it can be funny one moment and super sad the next. Um, and yeah. we've got a stacked cast here. Uh, we won't be able to talk about everybody today because, again, this is Olivia's picture. But we do have Mary Anderson, who was one of the lead, one of the many people stuck on a lifeboat by me, Hitchcock. I put them in the fucking lifeboat and I just said, here, deal with deal with having a Nazi in your boat and trying to figure out if you're going to kill him or not. Um <laughs> And uh, we also had Ronald Culver, Philip Terry, Alma Marikar, Victor Victoria Horn, Willard Robertson, John Lund in his big debut, uh, and Bill Goodwin. Now, Bill Goodwin was somebody that the moment I saw in this movie, I didn't recognize him. But the moment I heard him, I did because Bill Goodwin was a, uh, a primarily a radio announcer. Uh, and one of his biggest shows was the Burns and Allen program where he would extol the virtues of Swan Soap and or Maxwell House Coffee, depending on what year you're listening to those episodes from. Um, and he was on the television run from 50 to 51, but he is replaced by Harry Von Zell in there. Um, Bill Goodwin's got a great role in this. He plays Mac in the movie. Uh, you'll learn more about Mac as we jump into this plot right now. We're starting off, Olivia, it's World War II. And... Fire wardens are patrolling the area, and we meet Josephine Jody Norris, a lonely woman who is not so much a mystery as the text at the front provides. <laughs> uh, we just know that she's very, very uh, alone, um, but ready to commit herself to her work. And she and Lord Desham uh, are keeping a uh, keeping a watchful eye on. Uh, the uh, uh, on a uh, a desolate area in order to make sure that the fire um, uh, that the bombs do not go off in their area and Jody is um, very very keeps to herself. She's a very very um, she's she's not willing to divulge a bunch of information right away. Uh, yeah, she and, seems a little. Um, I don't want to say bitter, but yeah, she's she's holding things close to her chest and is a very strong. And uh, a strong woman who right away you get the sense she knows what she wants. She knows what she has. She very much, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, even in this time period, she was a unique, she was unique because women, uh, you know, single women. Yeah. <laughs> without, you know, seemingly without children or a husband or anything like that. It's it's rare during this time. Period. He, 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 well, Lord Desham provides the, provides like the, 
the 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 stability here to help extol why Jody is somebody you root for, uh, being this out of fish out of water for the standard of women at the time, because Desham is inquiring about her history and she's very upfront. She's like, I run a cosmet, I ran a cosmetic company and now I run a munitions factory. And you're just like, Holy shit. Like <laughs> this is, this woman is awesome. Now, how does she become the person that she is? And through through the course of a, uh, well, first I should say that Jody saves Desham's life because he almost falls off a roof. <laughs> yeah, and that's an incredible moment because I will tell you I did not see that coming in the movie, mm-hmm. um, and it was just played so well by the two of them, and it really, I mean, it really caught me by surprise that that happened and um, their performances were so great. And then it, again, this happens in like the first couple minutes of the film. So it sets off her character right away. Yeah. And, and, which and is such an important, important thing for us to understand who she is. And again, like you said, how she's arrived where she is in that, you know, yeah. in this in life version of herself. Yeah. And uh, the big thing about, um, when we when when he when she finally uh starts to open up a little bit and telling the story of her of of how she got to this point in her life it's when we were are whisked off to that flashback and already you can tell that you're in for a very different type of leading woman character um there's a lot of determination and grit in her this independent fierceness that uh possesses the character of Jody but we start off with Jody in this American town called Pearson Falls. Um, and at the moment, she really is just uh, working in her father's shop and not wanting to know. She doesn't know if she wants to get married. She doesn't know if she wants to have. <laughs> and she has many suitors, which I always love about this time period, because there's just men dropping proposals to women left and right. And you know, I'm like, why <laughs> Why does that exist today? Where are all these suitors on the street and they're like, take my hand in marriage? It's like very, very no, okay, next woman. Yeah, it's like I love I have to say that this is a part I turned to my mom during this this part of the movie and I'm like, this this is what makes this uh era of film filmmaking very funny to me because it's so um, it's like, okay, I met this person five seconds ago and now I'm in love. Like, it's, it's, And now we're getting married. And it's, like everything escalates very quickly in relationships yeah. in this era. Yeah, the, the pacing of the love plots in movies, um, unless you are doing a specific type of story, is accelerated in these earlier films. Uh, yeah, a lot great. of it, A lot great. of it works through the, uh, the, through the lens of like, uh, like uh, episodic nature because usually the love plot is unless it's a love film specifically it's a side plot here though the acceleration ends up being necessary because of the story that unfolds exactly and so it's like you definitely are forgiving with it because it's so it it is charming and it, it is believable they do they do do it justice and it's just it is funny but i mean what i love about the transition from the opening of the film to this first flashback is really that you see such a distinct with this actress, you see such a distinct um, change in her mm-hmm. and not only with the aged makeup, right. But also just in how she, 
she is as a as a younger version of herself. Um, it's like this older version of herself is more weathered and, um, you know, life has kind of taken its toll on her. And then you see her when she's younger and you're like, oh, look, look, she was so um, optimistic and yeah, and and just bright eyed and and she plays it so well between the two, the two versions of this one person yeah and, and, but it's really striking and what i like is that she's uh not afraid to be unsure because she first gets in a, a proposal from alex pearson um the way i gathered it from the film he's like a son of the town founder <laughs> and, yeah um and pearson seems like a nice enough guy but he's very he's too insistent he's a little bit too pushy um whereas mac tilton a traveling salesman played by bill goodwin uh his very very he's he's the huckster to end all hucksters olivia he is oh yeah come, come on over here baby <laughs> it's amazing yeah he calls her baby like a lot it's yeah so fun. which which normally this uh normally this that type of dialogue would make me kind of cringe a little bit but it's always in retrospect but when you when you find out where mac goes it seems less um i don't want to say like <laughs> it, it's less creepy <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um and uh but she doesn't want to marry either of them she doesn't know what she wants until well we we should establish this is during world war one uh as we're in this uh part of the film and uh uh there's a uh, a certain pilot comes into town uh a dashing pilot named captain bart cosgrove <laughs> uh and uh she, he is uh, brought on a bit of a bond tour in the town and uh, he finds uh, respite and refuge for sleep. Much needed sleep because he's a fucking war pilot and he needs sleep yeah. not to be a dog and dog and pony show for the for the government. <laughs> um, the man that heads up this town is very intense. He's oh, very aggressive. <laughs> oh, you, oh, I'm sorry, Olivia. Do you mean Bernadette Clinton? <laughs> this oh, this man. this guy talks through a bullhorn like it's nobody's business he yeah he wants everyone to know what's up here and this actually leads to the con it, it leads to the conversation too with uh captain cosgrove and jody in the back of the store talking about the the the, the troubles that a war pilot go a fighter pilot goes through and you start to slowly see Jody like uh, uh, soften her guard a little bit. And I think it's just because she's not used to seeing somebody be this uh, honest because it, it, there, right. is, there is something about Bart that is very, very honest as a character so that even as he is not in the movie a lot, um, you have uh, the, I think it's John Lund playing Cosgrove and eventually, um, who we're going to talk about here in a minute. Um, but John Lund, I think gives a lot of range here to really kind of give you the, uh, the, the reality of a war pilot at that time, which obviously even as far as 1946 being after the war, there's still a resonance with it. There's still something there that you can latch onto from experience at this time that a member of the audience is going to definitely, fall in line with what the movie wants us to uh, go down because they, they, there's a, the, during the rally uh, again, Jody kind of uh, turns away uh, 
Alex, but it's not just for the marriage reasons. It's also uh, he she's Alex was trying to have Jody convince Captain Bart about joining his squadron um, and something of that nature. And um, part of Bart's spiel is that he's trying to tell Jody, like, tell your tell your man not to uh, not to not to get into this racket. Um, and of course, it doesn't really matter because Alex is. Uh, engaged now to Corinne, another woman of the town, and it's seemingly to make Jody jealous, um, which is kind of sad to <laughs> to see that unfold. Like that's 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 not fair to Corinne, especially what ends up happening to her later on in the film. Allah, um, I don't know. After the way she behaves later, I don't have much sympathy. I, yeah, neither. So neither do I. But there is that moment when we fought, when we learn what we learn about her um, experience with childbirth, where I'm just like, there is a dynamic here where I'm just like, you know what, Corinne is kind of just being used and played like a fiddle here to where when she has the moment that she has, I don't not agree with her. <laughs> like, But given the fact that Jody is our our character that we are rooting for and that she is the most sympathetic. It puts me in a bind when I'm analyzing it to be like both of these women have uh have been broken and they are feeling hurt and it's interesting to watch them both try to suss it out on their own ground and terms. Um Yeah, I think it's interesting though because to that point it's like yes, like both of them have been hurt but they have different reactions to that yeah one is one is defensive and the other one is honestly kind of open to like compassionate yeah Yeah. exactly and corinne definitely is put on the defensive in that point um yeah but exactly in order to get to that point though we'll say that jody and cosgrove then have a dance at this rally and uh they go up flying and uh of course Captain Bart tries out that old trick about, oh, well, we're almost out of gas in my plane, which, I mean, I'm sure, Olivia, you've been in that position, too, where you're up in the air with somebody and then suddenly they're out of gas and you're going to crash. I would not be reacting the way that she does in this movie. She's to the fact that they're supposedly out of gas and have to crash land. No, no. Fascinating to me. I would be freaking out, but yes. She's it's, very gracious. <laughs> yeah, she's just like, hmm, interesting. Because cause Captain Bart is using this as a ploy to uh, have some intimacies with Miss Jody. But yes, you're right. She should be saying, what the holy fuck? <laughs> We're going to die? <laughs> exactly. And she's very much like all gaga gooey eyed and loving him and well, in this moment. And I'm like, I don't know. If you could love this man who's clearly play playing one on you, but <laughs> to, be, to be fair, Olivia, I will say I'm a I'm a straight white male. John Lund looks into my eyes. I might I, I might have some second thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, it definitely it he knows what he's doing in this moment in the movie, and he uh, does it well, and it doesn't certainly does not backfire on him at all. Yeah, that's yeah. that's true. Now that being said, as a straight white male, I am not taking a page from his playbook whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, please please don't. Not a good move. Yeah, this is unadvisable. But it, what's funny, he does show virtue because she expresses what she is kind of looking for within that love that she would feel for another person and he he then goes like, "All right, look, I fucking lied." <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, right away. He's like, oh, can't do this to you. Yeah, sorry. Like, yeah, yeah, no, I, I'm I'm an asshole, but I'm not that much of an asshole. Let's land this plane. Wee! Go down to the ground. We're like, no, 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 no. The love you're looking for, the love, uh, like, basically, they, uh, they, they do fall in love, but they have that one night together before he goes off. Yes. And in that one night together, um, the, the, the circle of life happens, if you will. Um, the, <laughs> the, the embracement of, uh, they have a, they have a, pre- they're going to have a baby and, uh, the, uh, Jody is pregnant and she, um, she is aware of it, but she's keeping it secret. Uh, there's actually a conversation as she is reading a, a note from, uh, Bart that, uh, uh, Corinne actually comes into the, her father's shop and she reveals that she's pregnant uh with alex's kid and she discusses how alex might be able to get out of the army due to a connection and in that time our favorite um uh rabble rouser uh bernadoc comes in and well actually first i should mention uh, i forgot about this jody has the uh she discovers that she has some kind of disease that can be removed but in the consequence of it she would lose her baby uh, well, you skipped over the milk part. Yeah. <laughs> I skipped over <laughs> the milk part. Saying? That's right. The discussion of having milk. I, <laughs> I just really loved that that they use that, the milk, them drinking the milk, as the nod to the fact that they were all pregnant. Yeah, exactly. They don't, nobody says anything out loud until she gets to the doctor's office. The word pregnant or yeah. baby, not mentioned once. There is. But they're a, all drinking milk. Yep, they're all drinking milk. And the way Corinne reveals that she's pregnant, she goes, that's right. Because um, the, the woman who comes in, um, Belle, is expressing that she, in her condition, she needs to only have milk. And um, Corinne goes, that's right. And then Jody goes, no. <laughs> she goes, yeah. Yeah. They talk about how it, it helps build strong bones. Yeah. Build... So like, oh, well. Yep. And you're just like, oh. oh but this... then Jody pours herself a glass. Yep. And that's when uh, that's when that's when all is revealed to the audience. And so it's again Mitch Lyson using these small details to great point us into the direction of where everything's going. Now, the following scene as we're getting into the doctor's office with the disease. Um, she's, a, that it's, it's a vague life-threatening illness that requires an operation, but, uh, the, 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 the doctor provides that melodramatic turn, which is if you do this, you'll lose your baby. And I, I, I gotta be honest, I, my experience with films of this nature is not so broad. So like even anytime I see somebody talk that bluntly in a film of this era, I am still taken aback regardless of my exposure to it at times. Um, and just it's it's weird knowing what we know now about scientific development, but also the discussions around um, pregnancy and women's choice. It's an interesting scene to see unfold in 1946. It's almost like the censors might have like forbidden this discussion to happen the way it does. But the dialogue is very, very upfront. Like it's, it's very pointed. Yeah. And I mean, what I got from that is. I mean, this this still unfortunately happens because I mean, this is a whole other discussion, but the the medical field in terms of like women's health um, is is not advanced much <laughs> even since that's this period. So I mean, really, I think like the 70s mm-hmm. is like, the most like there was 
some progress and then yeah it's it's really it's really behind is all I will say but this still happens to women today where they are faced with this um faced with with health factors complications different things that would require a an emergency surgery that would um you know have them have to unfortunately lose you know result in them unfortunately losing their child that still happens today so um you know i got the sense that you know that's what was happening um but i agree with you like during this time period they were much more blunt in this movie about it than i was expecting for sure it's very it it took me aback for a minute because the, the the doctor like I can't remember if he takes his glasses off or not, but for the purposes of this, I'm going to just assume he takes off his glasses and goes like, if you do this, you lose your baby. And, yeah. and, 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 and this is like three fifties, you know, this is 46 when this came out. This so is, this is a time where Dr. Kildare is running around. This is not, this is, not, yeah. this is not uh, the, uh, the, the, you know, like it, it, I always go back to when it comes to pregnancy in this era, I always go back to Lucille Ball with the I Love Lucy show where the, 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 the show where they announce that she's pregnant, the title of the show is called Lucy is Incente, which Incente in Spanish is pregnant. And they don't say the word pregnant. They never say the word pregnant. They have to allude to it in different ways. And it's actually one of the best written television episodes of all time because of the way it's written, because they had to work around things um, to the point and where... So, yeah. Similarly, in this movie, they do that. They work around it with the sort of the milk... Mm-hmm. scene but then i think that's why it's so shocking is they work around it with the milk scene and then he actually really just comes out and says it in the very next scene yeah so it's it's but i think it i think it is like if if, if i had to venture a guess i'd say with the censors uh with any uh uh hesitation that there might have been uh there, there would have to be like a compromise in that respect to be like okay we can either have this or we can have this what are we going right. to do? And I think right. that they made the better decision because the visual cues of the milk is a little bit more uh, affecting to any audience member of any age because of the way it plays out. Um, and so she actually kind of makes she makes the decision to uh, uh, to do the operation and lose the baby. Uh, but then um, as she is back at her father's shop, Bernadette Clinton comes in very distraught very distraught Olivia because he doesn't say the name. He just says, I spent a whole afternoon with that boy. And that's how we know that captain Bart Cosgrove has been shot down in action. And And it's um, a very sad moment, but the way that they um, give Olivia space in the scene for her performance to react to it is pretty um, beautiful. Yeah. She's allowed to sit with things on a meditative scale. It's it's yeah. it's for a melodrama where keeping keeping the pace going the way it's going to with all the highs and the lows. There's a lot of moments of quiet with her. Yeah, which I really liked. It that's why I think it it still like I said in other movies from this era, especially melodramas, it's I mean it really is that it feels melodramatic at times. But this movie doesn't really do that it's not as it's much more subtle and it's she plays it very i mean honestly i want to say kind of in a a modern acting way because it's soft and it's gentle and it's quiet and it's not overblown um it's very realistic 
and it and it uh, doubles down on the fact that she clearly had studied from the Stanislavski book enough to draw something into it. Um, the method yeah. act, the method acting, which uh, um, uh, the you know the 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 merits of which are a case by case basis, in my opinion, because not everybody, <laughs> not everybody should be doing it. <laughs> but, right, <laughs> we've seen some uh, modern uh, downfalls due to practicing it but yes <laughs> yeah and and then and there's ones with even the people that aren't problematic where i'm just like you know like i i, I like joaquin phoenix but i fear for him at times <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> um or actually daniel day lewis i don't fear for because i'm i'm convinced he made a pact with the devil somehow um a, a positive just, a positive pact but a pact he's nonetheless too good. yeah he's, he's too good, too good. He's, he's, he's just too amazing. Olivia. If I, if I watch, there will be blood again tonight. It'll be for that reason. And that reason alone, just Daniel day Lewis. I mean, um, honestly, I feel like every movie of his, I watch solely for him. Yeah. Let's just be honest. That's well, I can definitely say that's the reason I watched nine. <laughs> yeah. I watched yeah. nine for him. I could not have cared less about them remaking eight and a half into a musical. <laughs> yeah. That is a, that's the truth right there. Hey, awesome. Olivia, go live for Italy. Live for Italia. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I still can't believe he's, re you know, retired. Though. I'm just like, come on, man. Oh, uh, he, he, he made a choice and it's fine, but, Back to, I don't believe it. <laughs> anyway, back to this movie. Back to back to Dweech's own. <laughs> um, so she so she learns of the death and uh, she uh, she she makes the decision along with talking with her father that she's going to have the baby because she I believe the line is is like you know I can't you know like this is a part of him and he needs to live on even if he's got, even while he's gone. Now, this is when we get into the topic of marriage out of wedlock, which is obviously a concept that today is no longer a major issue um, right. unless it deals with, I guess, celebrity affairs or something. I don't know. Um, it, it, it's irrelevant, guys. People are going to do what they're going to do. But um, life the, happens. Yeah. Yeah. The life uh, finds a way. Uh, yeah. If you're going to get pregnant, <laughs> that's uh, your business. And uh the uh, but the 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 way the way it's portrayed here is interesting because it ends up becoming like an elaborate scheme, <laughs> uh, which is yeah. I, it was like I was kind of like taken aback by the leaps and bounds they're doing to do this because the plan that she establishes with Daisy the nurse who is the the tough the tough New York. <laughs> nurse who does not give two shits she she comes from brooklyn and she'll let you know it uh, i know i love the little comment she makes where she's like this seems very complicated she basically says like this seems really she acknowledges that the plot is complicated <laughs> she's like look complicated. I'm, it's clearly a small town and not brooklyn when you can just do this and it's done you know <laughs> look olivia mitch you do realize that this movie is absolutely bonkers but thankfully you've got me <laughs> Daisy, played by Victoria Horn, to settle this matter with my blunt Bronx attitude. Right. <laughs> and right. so the scheme is this. She has the child. She has a beautiful baby boy. Uh, 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 and the scheme is, is that they're going to have him left on a doorstep of a family with too many children already and then 
Jody will be called over and be like, oh, no, you got another baby. Let's say why don't I'll not take your baby. And then, bam. Uh, she's, yeah, I'll take this child off your hands. Yeah, like, exa- wink. <laughs> I'll be convenient. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I have oh. children, so I, I'll graciously accept this child from the sky. Yeah, it's yeah, like... She- she has, to, she has to do the double acting that I love so much. I, I was starting to notice this more and more often than not with Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity, where she's having to play a layer on top of a layer on top of another layer. <laughs> she actually does get to uh, play into that moment when uh, the family that she's going to give it to, uh, that they give it to, to then do the reveal. Uh, she's playing along going like, well, I can be here. She is a little too enthusiastic. <laughs> to be over there right away but it but it works for the movie it doesn't feel disingenuous um and now here comes the part that's interesting is is that corinne has lost her newborn on that same day she lost her child miscarriage uh and the opportunity of a, a child left on a doorstep is then uh, brought to the forefront for Alex and Corinne to take this new child that is Jody's. Jody uh, even goes to Corinne and Alex's to plead for getting the baby back. And Alex, uh, she doesn't reveal right away that it that it's her baby. Uh, and Alex, basic Alex and the doctor who is was attending to Corinne, basically goes like for for a long moment. Corinne was going to be lost to us because of how inconsolable she was. Uh, And so she then is able to find love with this abandoned child, quote unquote, uh, that she names Gregory or Griggsy. And Jody is now having to love her son from afar here. Um it's a very, very hard scene to watch within the regards of just like the um, the crushing emotion. And Jody's father actually uh, dissuades her from revealing the fact that it's her kid to them because she he doesn't want his grandson to grow up a marked child. Um, it's so sad. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost as if it's almost as if these uh, outdated values don't matter period. And you don't, it doesn't matter how you got pregnant. If you're willing to keep the kid and raise it, that's your business. And it's not, I know it's almost almost as if these uh, outdated rules did more harm than good. (laughs) It's almost as if <laughs> it's almost it's almost as if the outdated values of of uh systemic religion <laughs> don't <Yeah>. fucking matter. <laughs> it's almost as if it was written by a bunch of men, Corinne. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. With their own um agenda. Yes, anyway. Exactly. Huge agendas, <laughs> the kind that you would bring to school each day to write down your uh activities for the day. And uh but uh yeah, so she loves the kid from afar. Uh, now, uh, Jody, Jody's father passes away. Uh, and at this point, actually, uh, Mac returns to the picture. Uh, Mac comes in with a sport and a brand new car. <laughs> and he's a fancy fan. Yeah, he, he is. 
I love Mac, Olivia. We, 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 let's talk about how Mac is actually this. Like, I love side characters in movies where feasibly they could have their own movie, but it's thankful that yeah. they don't. And yeah, exactly, exactly. Mac, yeah. Mac Tilton is one of these characters where I'm like, you know, it, it's very, very weird because there's another movie where you're a Warner Brothers gangster right now. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I'm talking like a Warner Brothers gangster from the era where the code was, was starting to get enforced. And so you had to work around it with like a comedic gangster movie, like Edward G Robinson in um, a slight case of murder or Cagney and the lady killer. Like the, 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 you have to find another angle in order to get around the code. And yeah. Bill Goodwin could probably do it. He's not super tough, but, I could see him slick and smooth enough to, you know, kind of play that part. Um, and he actually he tries. Right. <laughs> yeah. And he tries to convince her to go to New York with him because he runs a cosmetics company. Wink. And <laughs> and uh, she goes, no, 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 no. I'm too busy here uh, in my uh, in my father's uh, store. But, oh, no, my father is dead. Um, which, by the way, um Mr. Norris, uh, Griff Barnett is very, very, very warm and tender in his performance. Like it's a very small role, but he does everything with it that he needs to. Yeah. It's really lovely. Yeah. And from there, Jody goes to Corinne and Alex and says, well, what if I become the nurse to Griggsy? To her mind, this way she can be closer to Griggsy and um and not upset the apple cart as it were that her father yeah. wanted her to keep and corinne shuts that down immediately because she's like you don't think i know <laughs> and yeah this here's the thing so this is the complicated scene that i was talking about that kind of toyed with me but it did another thing for me uh olivia it, this is what it did it it put me in the situation where i uh, i flat out was like, am I gonna watch a Battle of Wits? <laughs> yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> it's a really good scene because they both have their motivations and they're both really strong actresses, and it's really well done. It's really well acted and scripted and all of the things. And uh, I just struggle because I just in that moment I I just think to myself that, I, you know, yeah, as a fellow woman. Corinne should understand Jody's position and be compassionate with it and, and understanding and just softer, I would think. Yeah. And this is when she just really turns and I mean, really kind of embodies the villain of the movie. Yeah. So, it, it, here's the, here's the thing on this. Uh, I'm glad that you said the word villain because Yes, technically she's the villain of the movie. If we're if we're looking for a traditional bad guy, yeah, Corinne Pearson, a bad guy that is a person, she is that in this movie. Yeah, and it's what it's interesting to me. Like, we'll jump ahead real quick to the fact that the Oscar nominations of this are two: one for best actress and one for best motion picture story for Charlie Brackett. Um, yeah, because uh, Charlie Brackett also wrote this film with Jacques Thierry, um, and uh, but this is Brackett's story. And Corinne is such a complicated character, even yeah. with her few scenes where I'm just like, how did Mary Anderson not get a nomination for this? This seems and wrong. Truly, truly, she really, like, you're right, because she didn't have that many scenes. But her her performance was felt through the whole movie. Yeah. She 
really made an impact and performed it so well. And and when I say she's like is kind of the embodiment of the villain in this movie, she also, as you've noted, there you also have compassion for her. So mm-hmm. it's not black and white in in that sense. It's it's not so clear cut right and wrong. And that's, I think, what with all of the characters in this movie that all have so many layers to them. Um, and that's why they feel so real. And yeah, and that's why it just really, I mean, hits even even today. It still has an impact, even when we're not dealing with the same, you know, societal kind of barriers for women, um, you know, in Jody's case. But like, it still has an impact because the characters are all so layered. Yeah. And, and Corinne as a, what's interesting you when you're bringing that to the forefront, like the villains that have worked for me in recent films of the past uh, 10 years, I want to say um, are the ones where the villain is empathetic. Um, you have an yes. empathy for them. You don't sympathize. You empathize. Um, right. Uh, and Corinne, I think captures a lot of those elements. And so she refuses and says so like, no, 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 no. I'm not giving up my kid. And uh, the uh, the way she reveals her her insistence on keeping Grigsy is by saying like, "Look, I know you guys fucking played me." And Jody goes, "What?" And she goes like, "I know that Alex married me to make you jealous, and that he never loved me." And that's the moment that breaks my heart a little bit to be like, "God, you were used. <laughs> like, this is yeah. terrible." <laughs> Right. But she also indicates that she knows that Jody is his real mother. So that's when it's really hard because she in in both the same in the same sentence she says, "Oh, I realize that this is your actual son, and I also realize that this man that I married that I want deeply to love me doesn't because he loves you." And so she almost uses the boy as kind of her trump card to get back at Jody. Yeah. For it's it's the Jody's in the middle and it's it's kind of sad because she didn't love this man. <laughs> she loved somebody else and he's passed away and she can't have the son that was theirs and it's a deeply sad story. She she's like, "Look, I didn't like Alex. I don't know how to make it clear to him or you." <laughs> yeah, it's such a weird moment. Yeah. And and when when and and Alex just willingly uh, reveals that information too when Corinne asks for confirmation. <laughs> and yeah, like, oh, buddy, no, no, dude, you need to shut up now. <laughs> like, yeah, Alex is. Yeah, Alex is a weird fucking character. I don't know how to. I I don't know how to describe this character from a modern uh, context. I'm like, so I, I'm like, I guess thankfully I haven't seen that. Like. <laughs> um that I'm remembering and but so Jody does make uh Alex promise to write about him and to send pictures and whatnot and she starts beginning a scrapbook for him um but in this time she decides you know what I'm going to go to New York to work for Mac at his cosmetics company so she goes to New York she meets up with Mac Mac says hey baby come on in <laughs> like literally again the only He's 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 the only one that I can think of that's getting away with this dialogue and I'm just like, ah, uh, you're just a you're just lovable right now. Like <laughs> Oh, truly. I felt the same way. I was like, you know, any other person or character 
saying this dialogue would be just giving me so many cringes, but it works for him. And it's also like you said, it's not that it's like he comes off as sleazy. You're like, it's weirdly, it's this (laughs) affectionate thing. And you're like, how is this, how is this man pulling this off? (laughs) Yeah. I think only Bill Maxwell house coffee. Goodwin can do it. Olivia. Like you, you you don't understand. He could, he could, on the shows that he was on with Burns and Allen, he could talk to Dorothy L'Amour about making sweet love to her and then transition into an advertisement for Swan Soap within the span of five seconds. It's it's kind of incredible. Like, I, I, I don't know how you possess that power. And, and what's amazing about it, Corinne, is that he uses it responsibly. <laughs> Yeah, truly. He's just like, I've got this great power to be slick while being sincere. I'm going to use it for good. (laughs) Yeah, truly. Bill Goodwin's the superhero we all needed. (laughs) What was that? I said, this is an amazing moment in the movie, though, because... Mm -hmm. She, it's again, it's like a, another moment where we're shown her, her savviness and her, um, her strength really because in this moment she just sort of takes charge yeah well and and the breakdown of it is such is that spoiler alert mac is not in the head of a cosmetics company he's a bootlegger (laughs) 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 the cosmetics company is a front he's like yeah we got some machines over there for appearances and we got an office and i got the police on the payroll you know nothing nothing's going wrong it the only issue i have with this movie and his character is that it's such a shame that his story of gangster triumph is so (laughs) short-lived for us the audience Seconds are short-lived. It's. I was actually like giggling about this because, in one switch, as soon as he says nothing is going wrong, I have it all. <laughs> up, then the police cut, break down the doors like immediately. Like it's basically like he says that line. They don't even take a breath and they turn and the police are there and it's like, oh Mac, you you like spoken into existence, Mac. Do, do, you, do, you, do you do you do you know what I do, you know what I took away from that? Yeah. So I'm a big fan of the Irishman. Martin Scorsese's the Irishman. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in the course of 30 seconds, Mitch Lyson does virtually the entire uh, runtime of a Martin Scorsese gangster movie like the oh Irishman. God. That's <laughs> funny. That's so true. It's kind of like that's not to disingen. It's not disingenuous to Scorsese. It's just like wow, like that was the quickest rise and fall I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, for that, sure. But I think. And that's a funny point that you made, though, is that all of these characters, right, are so, um, so well done that they could all have their own stories. Yeah, exactly. It just so happens to be Jody's story. But like in that, you know, as you just said, there's been whole movies about backstory yeah exactly so his own story and you could have like you could you could have a corinne film being made by uh ah. being made by like mary heron or something like that you could have uh, a lord desham film directed by like mike lee <laughs> you could yeah, have batman has his own story too yeah, yeah. It's, alex it's, pearson's story is a coen brothers movie because it's about a sad pathetic man but <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, I, I think what we should follow this up with is have people watch this movie yeah because it is free and available to watch. We just have to provide the link, watch this movie. And then I'd like everyone to choose a character and determine the modern day director that would direct their movie. Oh my God. <laughs> it's, it, I, think, like. 
I think this is a perfect idea. This is this is a challenge to the Ballyhoo listeners. When this episode comes out and you hear Olivia's challenge, answer the call on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, wherever the heck you're interacting with the show. Um, now, here comes the kicker on uh, this. So she goes. To, so the 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 place is raided. Max, like, nah, nah, come on, policeman. Here, take my take my bread money. And he's like, Mac, please stop embarrassing yourself. <laughs> Yeah, true. <laughs> and they are left. He is now left destitute pretty much instantly. And uh, Jody's like, now, you're that's not the Mac Tilton I know. You've got everything here to start an actual makeup company. <laughs> and yeah. Jody starts the actual cosmetic company, Lady Vivian Cosmetics. <laughs> in seconds it's amazing and and i love that this all happens and then mac actually says um this wasn't how i saw your first day in new york going so you realize in that moment that this is the first day that this woman has been in new york city and in that time frame she's been a part of a raid on a bootlegger and bailed him out of jail and then started a company and you know what olivia she did it without a loan from her father amazing <laughs> it's, it's amazing it's incredible and and and, and and what's more she she's prat she's already like she already knows how to be practical with money because mac makes a comment about like well i'm supposed to eat and she's just like get a hamburger like <laughs> yeah that, that, like essentially for them to split too it's really funny oh, yeah. and i love that you know it, it really flips on the script, she comes for hit to him for a job. <laughs> and then in 24 hours, she's like bossing him around being like, here's $20, go pick up all this stuff I already ordered for us to start a business. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's again, like one of those examples of Mitch Lyson touching into themes that are it's like today, this kind of film would absolutely flourish with those themes in mind. And um, or at least they, they would be easier to make than in Golden Age Hollywood. Um, obviously, right. it's not easy to make films of this nature this day and age right now. But the the gap of the the the, the barrier is different. And uh, the uh, this type of story with this type of strong character, it's not that it didn't exist in this time. But I think the films that we tend to recognize are the ones that have a more outdated mode of thinking for the most part. Yeah. Um, and uh, so they start making cold cream and they become fucking rich. <laughs> Very rich. Within the this... woman is walking down with like multiple fur coats and neck wraps. and She's got a mansion her... after her first day in New York. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It's wonderful. Very impressive. I love it. And now American dream. Yep. And uh, she is also um, st finding ways to see Grigsy. One of them uh, involves her um, uh, attending a rodeo uh, and talking to young Grigsy uh, played by a very good child actress, uh, child actor, sorry, Billy Ward, um, who I think is wonderful in the movie in his few there, scenes. Yeah. And yeah. He talks to Alex. She talks to Alex in that moment, too. And Alex is like, yeah, my business isn't doing well. I'm going to have to go into another thing, but I'm going to have to ask for financing. And she's like, OK, gotcha, gotcha. And so since she's rich, she goes to Corinne and makes an offer. She makes an offer she can't refuse. She um, uh, she uh, basically says, like, I'll save your husband's business, but I get Grigsy. And. Corinne is obviously going like, well, I thought we had this out years ago. Like, 
Like, yeah. I thought this matter was settled. Jody, why are you back? And, and great voice for her because I think it really goes well with the thing she has on her head, but that's a whole other discussion. Oh. I couldn't get over that headpiece. Des- descri- describe it for the audience, please. <laughs> it's like Mary had a little lamb combined with, it's like a bonnet combined with the lamb's ears. I don't know. It was very, I was not fond of it. I know it was like a thing of that time, a little mm-hmm. bed headdress of that time, I believe, but was not, was not feeling it. But the, to, uh, to use language of the era, it's rather garish. Um, yes. Yes. And, but, uh, uh, Corinne rocks are seen regardless of having that on her head. Oh, so. exactly. Well, there's a fun thing about Golden Age Hollywood, Corinne, and I've learned this from the Secret History of Hollywood Film Club each and every week. If you notice a hat, you call it out immediately. And you, and you <laughs> it doesn't matter if that hat is normal looking or if it's insane, you call it out. And it's it's a it's a it's a period in time in film where hats were a big, big deal. <laughs> and veils too, like veils. You see a veil, you call it out. You're just like, oh my god, there's a veil. That's a rare one there. <laughs> yeah, this was this was a rare one, but yeah. um, and, may I just yeah, yo, yeah, no, no. Despite her headwear, <laughs> yeah, she is she is like na na na, giving up my kid, and then Jody drops a bombshell, like uh, like a like a like a rap god dropping a mic down on the ground. Real, she really does drop I, her mic. She says, "I am the reason that your husband's business has stayed afloat thus far through loans." And I've been carrying these loans for years now, and they are waiting to. Fu- the bank is waiting to find out if I will approve a loan on Alex's business. And uh, she she puts Corinne in this very very difficult position to where the scene where we had where J- Corinne shows little to no compassion for Jody. It's reversed immediately in Jody's favor, and you see Corinne crumble. Like yeah. you watch, she does have her own children now too? In fact, she does. Has none. But but then comes the dilemma of just like, is this uh, appropriate for the child's well-being? I have. No, we're about to find that out. But like in the moment of this scene, it is kind of just like, man, you are unapologetic Jody. <laughs> yeah. But again, I think I had compassion for it because it was, you know, the lengths that this woman went to, to get her child back uh-huh. was so extreme. I mean, she went and started a company, became filthy rich in order to basically bribe this woman who's held her child from her. Yeah. <laughs> and said, Hey, knew it was actually her blood child and then came back and said, well, you're now in a situation where you need me. And so I'm now going to give you this in exchange for my son. So yeah. it's a very interesting dynamic because they're both right and they're both wrong. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a nobody wins scenario. <laughs> yeah. It's a cat. Yeah. It's the catch 22, if you will. <laughs> yes. Um, so or, it's a very good scene as well. Or, or, Honestly, every time these women are in a scene together in this movie, I think it's some of the best, it's they're the best scenes of the whole movie. Oh yeah. Ask. Hands Very- down. Th- this is a, in the back, in the terminology of the era, this would be a called a woman's picture uh, where yeah. women are the dominating force in the scene. Now we would just call it a really good drama. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and because uh, because the other name is, is denigrating. And uh, but anyway, th- th- she um, Corinne acquiesces. 
and uh, says, okay, I'll give you over Grigsy. Well, she doesn't say it, but it's, it's, in, it's implied actually through an amazing moment where Corinne does acquiesce out loud without saying, I'll give him to you. She says other words. And Jody's on the phone talking to the bank about the approval or not. And there's a delay where, you know, she waits and goes like, I just need to know how I'm going to break it to him. And through this, through this very clever dialogue, the gravity of the scene is established here where the audience, I would imagine at this time would be feeling like a very, very low emotion or, or something of like either a low emotion or a triumph, like depending on who's watching it. But there's right. an extreme emotion that's going to come from the audience in that point regardless because it's a very, very heavy scene. Because you're yeah. asking Olivia de Havilland to, uh, in in the course of uh, the time that this movie is being seen, might be seen as kind of monstrous to rip a, wo- a child away from a woman, period. But the element of also you are sympathizing with Jody and you are following her journey. So it also can be seen as a triumph. So it's almost like Mitch Lyson is playing with very difficult. He's playing with a very difficult uh, Rubik's cube here that he is able to assemble gracefully. Um, yeah, really, truly, truly. And uh, that there's uh, two months go by and Grigsy is not happy in his new home. Yeah. Um, and Mac is very disappointed, very taken aback to see that he is not happy because he's just like, oh, boy, I can't wait to meet this kid that you've been going on this long journey for this whole time. Yeah, <laughs> you wait, yeah, that you spent all this money on, too, that we made because, you know, that guy's, you know, he's a salesman. He's all about the money. Yeah, he's so. just like, man, like this, all this equates to me is just lost capital that I could be using to have another night at the night at the nightclub. like. <laughs> yeah, but no, he's actually at that point too. You see that he is a very good friend to her, uh-huh. um, yes, and a confidant to her at this point. And so that is kind of a nice moment for Max' character to come full circle, you know, because they he is like all baby this and baby that with her before, and Mister Schmoozy. And then it's interesting because you know she really, you know, gets him out of he gets out of jail. She gets him out of this whole situation. She creates an actual company for him, keeps him as a partner, all these things. They get rich together. And, you know, guy, and and he also, this is from the guy who originally wanted to marry her. I mean, all this stuff happens. And, you know, at the end, it's like, you can tell that there's this amazing respect that he has for her too. So it's it's very well played as well. It's respect. And it's a, it's a uh, platonic love. Like it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very sincere love. Like this really is the Mac Tilton redemption here. Like, yeah, it really is. And so I like that part of it too. Yeah. Which is again, now you guys know why we're able to stand him going, Hey baby, come on. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it's interesting because I think in this part of the film, right? Like you see the scene with Jody and, and Corinne. And as you said, you know, they're both right and they're both wrong. And, but, you know, you are pulling for Jody. And so when it feels like she wins by getting her son, mm-hmm. you're just like, oh my, you're like elated with her and you're so happy. And then you see this poor, sad little boy and he's uh, not, he's clearly struggling. Yeah. And she hasn't even told him that she's his real mother yet and all of these things. And so you basically, I think, have the same realize you realize with Jody in this in this movie um you realize alongside her that the right thing to do is to send this boy back yeah uh, and, that- and, and you're heartbroken with her because you understand what 
everyone is really having to give up here because also this little boy, he doesn't even know, but you know, he really is giving up his, his blood mother. And at this point he now has two mothers, but he doesn't know that he's looking right at his, his real mother. Yeah, and so to, it's really to him, to him, he's to him. She's just aunt Jody. Yeah. Uh, and the, the scene where they're talking in the room about, um, you know, like, do you know why, your mother uh, had you come to live with me. And she said, because you said you were lonely and she's like, well, yes, but do you know why I was lonely? And she tries to explain the concept of being an orphan to him. And Gregory snaps back that he already knows he's an orphan and that the kids used to make fun of him. And he doesn't need to explain that to you or anybody and runs into his room, crying, runs into the other room crying. Yeah. And, and he also says something really striking. Cause doesn't he say something along the lines of like, and his mother loves my mother loves me the most or something. Yeah, my mother loves and, me the most because I wasn't wanted. Yeah, and you're like, oh no. <laughs> yeah. And it's and and you know, with with Mitch Lyson and his legacy as a director, it's interesting because you know, we, we were using the term women's picture earlier and whatnot. And Mitch Lyson, um, you know, he he proves that he can play the gamuts in various different ways that I'd argue a Raoul Walsh or a John Houston, who are a little bit more gung ho of this era, aren't going to tap into. He, he has a better ability to understand the delicacies of a human emotion, um, which I, the scene with the kid is, is like, I think the best scene in the movie, hands down because of not because of the kid, but what happens after that. Because mm -hmm. we see de Havilland unravel her entire journey and have a realization at the core of it that she is not the mother. Yeah. She is not the mother. I think that the look on de Havilland's face only comes from two things. It comes from having worked with this director before and him being like, okay, I'm going to push you a little further now. But also to have one's natural ability to to express and change emotion uh, within the span of a few seconds in a way that is believable and not tacky. Um, right. Yeah. Like the 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 look as she shifts on her face and you know revealing to, out loud to um, I believe it's Mac who comes in and goes like I'm not I'm not the mother Mac like I'm I'm not his mother and. When she realizes he's she's not his mother in the traditional sense because of the fact that like Corinne has loved and cherished Grigsy because of the situation she was in, that Jody has to give it up and she's just gotta send Grigsy back. And she then goes out of the country to immerse herself in her work. And then starts the and start, starts running the English branch of Lady Vivian, and now we're pushed into years later. Now there's something that's interesting about this film, and um, one of my film club uh, uh cohorts, uh, Chris, um, uh, she's a big TCM fan, and she's actually been exposing me to a lot of movies that I wasn't aware of. Uh, she responded on Twitter last night, Olivia, to me watching really? this movie. And uh, Chris pointed out um, the uh, that it, this is a movie that shows middle-aged women looking realistically middle-aged. Listen, that's true. Yeah, and 
Chris is very spot on because this makeup combined with the way her voice changes is absolutely stunning. Like it is absolutely stunning to watch how the tremor in her voice decreases over time. But the makeup, like it's unafraid and unapologetic, which frankly, it shouldn't have to be a, a situation for apology and whatnot. But we are talking about an era in film where if an actress doesn't look a certain age, they are relegated to a certain type of role. So if a middle-aged woman is a middle-aged woman in Hollywood, they're being cast as an old maid at that point. Here, Olivia de Havilland is aging up, but she's allowed to look older. Whereas you might just kind of go like movie magic. She's still for, she's 40 now, but she still looks 25. Um, and I just love the fact that this exists. Like there's a movie like this existing out there where, casting a age disparism is is kind of like a non-factor for the movie um, right uh, which which is i think is an issue today it's it, 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 i think it's even it might even be a bigger issue today than it was back then in certain respects because it seems like we have a difficulty casting roles appropriately but you know it, it it's it's a b- bigger broader discussion but I love that De Havilland is able to play in this sandbox of doing a character through time the same way a male actor would get to. Um, like uh, like Robert Donat in Goodbye, Mr. Chips, where he's allowed to age up and kind of play that role. Um, and in this time, during World War II, her son, she already knows that her son has become a, a pilot in the 8th Air Force, um, we are basically going back to the situation with Lord Desham and he's going like, well, that was a fantastic story. Like, this is amazing. Do you want to be friends? Like, <laughs> <laughs> do you want to be, do you want to be loved companions? I say, and, uh, uh, cause I, I do find you quite attractive. And, um, at this point, she has already learned from another, um, officer that, uh, Greg or Grigsy is, uh, being now stationed in London. Uh, and she he, that he's arriving on the train tonight, and so she goes to the train station and looks around for uh, Pearson. Pearson. She keeps calling out for Lieutenant Pearson, and she sees him, and it's John Lund playing his father. <laughs> so John Lund gets a dual role here, and John Lund is wonderful here because he is. Uh, the embodiment of a young boy who's grown up in a very happy family and um, uh, looks like a responsible young lad. And um, uh, and she introduces himself or she introduces herself as a friend of of her mother's from back in Pearson Falls. And she has him over to uh, the house and. Through their conversation, they warm to each other. Uh, Gregory is kind of balled over by her generosity. The fact that he's going to help her get him, get tickets to the, uh, to, to, to a concert that evening. And he looks around the house as he's getting ready to leave. And he sees the scrapbook that Jody had been forming for, um, herself. And that's when she reveals to him, I'm aunt Jody. (laughs) And, which I'm like, woman, why are you holding all this information back the whole time? And then she also, you know, then he's like, why do you have this? Because it's a little weird even for your aunt to have this like scrap dedicated just to you. It's very intense. And 
she goes, oh, I've been collecting it for your mom or some. She just doesn't tell him. And it's like forever infuriating me, one, as a viewer. And two, I'm also like, sir, how do you not see through this? (laughs) Olivia de Havilland's like Batman. Uh uh, Olivia, she clearly nobody can ever know my secret identity. I am Griggsy's mom. <laughs> she's very much like very uh yeah. She's keeping this very close to her chest still all these years later. I'm the I'm the guardian lady in Vivian Cosmetics needs not the one it deserves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mac, get the jet. <laughs> and. But no, she, she, I, you know, I, part of me thinks that like, she just doesn't want to, she doesn't want to hurt him is the ultimate emotion that she's trying to avoid. She doesn't yeah. want to hurt him at this point. She already knows what it's like to hurt him. She doesn't want to do it again. So it's, right. a, it's, and she, yeah. And it's sad because it's like, now he's a grown man. He should be able to handle it a little bit more and also understand more of the nuances of life to understand what she was going through what his other mother was going through and all like all of the parts and pieces. But uh-huh. it's also really, um, again, it just shows that she's willing to live her whole life carrying this pain so that her son doesn't have to feel any of it, even be aware of it because that's how much she loves him. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's a very, very pure love that we see exemplified in the following scene, not just by Jody, but, but by also Lord Desham, which makes Roland Culver the secret hero of the movie, or like one of the secret heroes of the movie. Uh, so Lord Desham comes actually, he comes up to Jody's place, sees Griggsy leaving, and he goes like, well, I say, I guess I've been, uh, I, I've been played for a fool. And he goes up and he kind of inquires as to why that young man was there. And that's when she's like, that was my boy. And he's like, oh, I see, I see. And, <laughs> uh, yeah. and he... He sees that there is pain on Jody's face regarding this encounter. And yeah. uh, she also learns in this time that there's been a delay in the marriage that uh, uh, Griggsy wants to a young uh, Ren officer um, uh, who uh, there would be a delay. Basically, there'd be a customary delay in the marriage. And uh, the uh, Lord Desham has some pull. But he doesn't reveal any of it first. First, he goes like, look, we're going to go to the same place they're going to tonight and we'll sit from afar and you can watch him on his last night out. And um, and he goes like, I'll give you two. Your, uh, my favorite line is I'll give you yourself two hours to pull yourself together, which is a line that only works for this movie because of the way he's positioning it going like, I'm going to give you a great birthday present right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, uh, and uh, they go to the same club. Uh, and the, uh, they see that Griggsy and his young, uh, fiance are a little disappointed. They act, they walk in and here comes the bride starts playing <laughs> and it's almost like a big fuck you to their, their plans. <laughs> like the dramatic yeah. irony is, is, is palpable, but thankfully Lord Desham's going to be like, no, 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 just, just wait, just wait one second. And, uh, they lead Griggsy and his Ren, uh, uh, Ren fiance to the, uh, uh, to a, a secret room where there is a, uh, lavishly decorated floral wise, uh, room for a ceremony. Cause Lord Desham's like, I pulled some strings with the archbishop. Boom. <laughs> and 
they can now get married without any of the interference. And the the line Olivia says in this moment, uh, this isn't a present for uh, him. It's a present for me so that it's she can so be at her son's wedding. Yeah, it's so sweet. It's so sweet. But the best part happens next. Yes, it does. But first, let's we'll conclude Lord Desham. He's just like, yeah, no, I'm a badass. Later. And then... <laughs> <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't leave. He still hangs out with them. But anyway, he's. But he also kind of lays down some hints about like you know mothers are the greatest thing. Wink. And, yeah, this and dropping all the hints. He's yeah. planting all the seeds he, in this frame. He, he does a lot of uh, it, the the way I would describe it comedically is that Monty Python sketch where Eric Idle's going. Know what I mean? Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Know what I mean? Nudge, nudge. <laughs> that, For sure, that's, he's. <laughs> doing that i think he even says know what i mean at some point during you know what i mean seed dropping to this guy look dash i'm gonna lay down some dialogue for this young man listen do you understand that that's your mother <laughs> <laughs> and um through the hints lieutenant pearson goes like we'll say <laughs> finally realizes yeah. actually i think the final push is his his now wife at this point his new wife yeah says oh interesting like you know i even saw that the way she looked at you and then it dawns on him yeah he's just like oh shit <laughs> and it's, just, it's like and then you're sort of like oh my god what is going to happen now because at this point this whole movie has been building up to this moment this very moment yep where the son finally realizes who his mother is Yep. And the I, I'll let you take it. He does the most beautiful thing in the world. That, and this is uh, what I was sobbing. Yep. And I was just sobbing. Just just tell the tell the world what she does or what he does. He so she's off dancing and you know, with Lord Desham, he's sort of taken her away because she needs she needs to collect herself. Um, in this moment and while she's off dancing, you know, this realization occurs and he, her said, he says, in, he says inside himself, holy Canarsie, which he said out loud multiple times too, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he does. And then he goes over, he pushes through the crowd until he gets to her and he says, I believe this is our dance mother. Uh-huh. And you just like lose your shit and because that's it, what you all, we've all been waiting for, including Jody. Yep, and the ni- a nineteen forty six audience is going, "Oh snap!" Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But they say it while they're crying, and then Lord Desham's yeah. like, "Dash him out, peace, brothers." And that yeah, and that's when he pieces out because he's like, he just. He just orchestrated this entire uh, beautiful, beautiful reunion. De- Lord Desham falls into the same category as Pepe from the shop around the corner where they have these wonderful moments where at the end of it, you could drop the song Gangster's Paradise and it would totally fit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Lord Desham, he deserves the uh, Lord moniker for yes, sure. Exactly. That's right. I'm, I'm the Lord of... Of making, the Lord of Love. I'm the Lord of the Lord of Love. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> because not only is he uh gaming for I mean, this is like, you know, we talked about how um uh, uh oh, what is what is see now I forget because he's so 
who's her lover? Oh, Ca- Captain Cosgrove. Captain, Captain Bart Cosgrove. <laughs> Captain Bart Cosgrove. We talk about his moves. Lord Desham shows that man up. He's just Mary, like, look, he just, he just, he wins. I'm sorry. Yeah, he wins. The, I mean, o- o- Olivia de Havilland wins the movie, but Ro- Roland Culver gets second place for badassery and wins first place for male lead in the movie. Um, yeah, which this man is, is uh, I mean, if we're talking, I just want to say any, um, any, anybody watching this who's uh, looking for some game, you know, we've already said, don't, don't go the Mac way. Don't, don't talk how Mac talks and just, yeah, don't do that at all. You know, as much as Captain Cosgrove's move in the sky works, don't think that that would work in in a outside of a Hollywood picture. Nope. So Mac is out and Bart is out. Cosgrove's out, but Lord Desham, that man is the definition of suave. <laughs> Do you know what I love the line? He go, uh, she, he goes, I have a surprise for you. She's like, well, I don't like surprises. He's like, well, you're gonna have to start getting used to him. <laughs> I know this man. He's basically just telling her, "You're going to love me." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's like, "Look, like I'm, I'm going to give you absolutely no reason to ever leave me and my side again." <laughs> and it's beautiful. Yeah. And I mean, you know, at the end, it's really lovely because this woman who is really alone all of her life, not only has she found Lord Desham, who is, you know, just <laughs> playing all the beautiful games yeah. to win her heart. Um, she also now has her son, so it's really beautiful in this moment. Yep. And Roland Culver, we're going to talk more about him because he is in some latter-day John Houston fare. Uh, so we'll talk about that in the uh, series uh, to follow. But the uh, he this man is amazing. He joined the Royal Air Force and served as a pilot from 1918 to 1919. And he turns over to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts because he's like, I want to act. And uh, he... Uh, debuts at the uh, in 1924 at the whole repertory theater, uh, and he sticks a lot in theater. But he is in a bunch of films, not the least of which is a, a Archer's film called The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, which I've never seen, but I always see clips of it. And I'm now I, now I am super on board watching him in a movie now again. Like, yeah, I, I need more Roland Culver in my life. Like, this guy is incredible. Um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and Night Train to Munich he's in, which I remember him in. So like, yeah, I've seen him before, but I've never really like looked at him the same until this, like, I haven't looked at him in a, in a, uh, in a, uh, a revelation moment until this movie. Um, but yes, yeah, so then the movie ends a paramount picture, Mitch Lyson, the, the curtain goes up, everybody applauds and cries and goes like, how dare you make me feel emotions, but still it's amazing. And, uh, <laughs> and the, uh, the film is released, on March 12th, 1946, uh, in the United States, with a premiere in New York City a month, two months later. Uh, the reviews on this film were very positive. Um, and Olivia de Havilland gets the bulk share of the praise, rightfully so, because. Yeah. Rightfully so. There's something about this, Olivia, that I haven't brought, uh, brought up yet. So the discussion of, um, the way she is trying to convince Corinne to give Grigsy to her, uh, in the, in the respect of, yeah. And in the, in the thought process of like, well, I've got a richer home and a better home and I'm technically the mother and whatnot. This sort of weirdly mirrors 
uh, something in actual Warner Brothers um, history because mm-hmm. Sam Warner, the brother who died after the making of the jazz singer, um, had a wife named Lita Basket, Lena Basket, who uh, had a child with Sam Warner. And when Sam died, uh, she uh, found it hard to support herself and the kid. And she was very, very despondent and was not. Uh, she she was basically trying to juggle a bunch of balls in the air. And Harry Warner basically, Harry Warner saw this and figured that Lita Lita's daughter Lena's daughter would be better off with him and the Warner family. And basically, Harry Warner bought Lena Basket's kid from her. Oh wow, ex- I didn't know that. In exchange for a large sum of money that. I, I, I don't want to give too much more of this story out there because the secret history of Hollywood literally makes it a huge crux uh, in their in, in his series and specifically Lena's journey because that's not even the end of Lena's journey. Um, wow. Uh, but um, but so to me, the basket situation suggests that it's it's kind of weird. It's almost like Charles Brackett, maybe without knowing it or really being aware of it. Uh, is giving Olivia de Havilland a thing to throw at the Warner legacy. Um, I don't, I think it's stretching. My, my theory is stretching, but I did find it really interesting knowing what I know about the studio to be like, this is fascinating. You just kicked the shit out of Warner brothers and now you're going to stab them in the heart where it hurts. Like that's. Oh, yeah. And then she, and then for her to go on and, uh, you know, win the Academy award for this too. Yep. Uh, There's a big, I'm sorry if I skipped over some of your notes, but no, no you yeah. didn't. No, you didn't. We're pretty much there because okay, good. So the the New York Film Critics uh, 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 Circle Awards gave a nomination to her for Best Actress, but in a rare moment of uh, intelligence, the Academy Awards won up to the Critics Circle by giving Olivia De Havilland her first Oscar, uh, and uh, the world applauds and still goes, "You still wrecked me emotionally," and. <laughs> Yes, I was wrecked. Yeah. But that's what's so crazy about the fact that this film is so hard to watch nowadays is not only is it such an amazing film, as I think we've highlighted in this podcast, she also won an, an award for it. And like, there's yeah. all, I mean, those two things alone, there's all this other stuff. I just, I cannot believe that it's so difficult to watch. Yeah. It, and what's interesting is given the fact like, so what, now we're in the waning parts of this discussion in a, in a wrap-up mode. We spent a good chunk of this episode talking about Olivia de Havilland's triumph in changing the system. I want to go back to de Havilland's law for a second. Because prior to making to each, to each his own, she has to go through this entire experience. The de Havilland decision um, ended up having far-reaching impact um because it's known as de Havilland's law it is referenced as such people who have benefited from this oddly enough uh, olivia are men uh and well, of course John- johnny carson the host of the tonight show used de Havilland's law to break his contract with nbc to then beginning negotiations with abc the use of the law he exercised and he ended up staying with NBC, but it provided leverage for him to get amongst other things, reduced workload, bigger pay and ownership of the tonight show. 
Uh, then in 2008, during the recording process of its third studio album, the band 30 Seconds to Mars <laughs> attempted. I knew about this one. I knew about this usage. Yep. Attempted to sign a deal with a new label, prompting EMI to file a $30 million breach of contract suit. But because De Havilland's law exists, they uh, the suit had been settled following a defense based on the law. And Jared Leto. I was going to say, I also love the fact that Jared Leto went and talked to Olivia de Havilland at this time. And he, and I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm trying to remember. I didn't, I, I, I forgot to look this up. There was something that de Havilland said in direct regards to like her, the response to like being like, oh, that was so nice that he reached out. I'm very happy that the yeah. things that I did today then are having far reaching effects today. Like, so like, you know, and he's. Oh. Yeah. We don't you don't have this luxury without the hard work of a woman, which is something that I th that's why I found it interesting that the the two notable beneficiaries of this law have been two notable men. Um, yeah. Now, now and and it might sound like to me to, to me when I look at that it just seems like ah oh, it's a shame that nobody's been able to like pull this shit out and that's not just a man, but what's interesting to me within these stepping stones is that a woman is responsible for a fairness and equality in the industry that no man ever really tried to shoot for at this time in Hollywood whatsoever. All the men in that industry were more than willing to be complacent with the law as it stood. And de Havilland was able, Betty Davis starts it first, but then Olivia de Havilland says like, no, 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 no. I'm either, I'm either getting what I want here or I'm going down. Like, one or the other. It's not like she's going to crawl back to Warner after yeah. that. Yeah. And I just think that, you know, bless my mom for using this woman as an inspiration for my name because I have to say, I hope that I live up to her, the legacy of her name because, you know, I, I like to think of myself as kind of feisty like that and coming yeah. up for what I think is right. And, I hope that that is a piece of her that I can keep in my heart and continue on as well. And I mean, she lived a very, very long and beautiful life. And, you know, to also see across her lifetime and her career, people, you know, using to their benefit something that she worked hard to, you know, achieve for people in the industry. That's that's got to be such a beautiful and rewarding thing yeah. um, for her. So, and, yeah. And it's and I think that. Because I, I, I do think that you're more than on the right track to living up to that namesake because of the things that you do accomplish in the oh industry. Um, Thank you. And I mean, and I've waxed philosophical on it at the top of the show with regards to what you do, but it's not even just let's go beyond the namesake. Like you, you're learning from somebody like this um, how to press forward. Um, and what's funny is De Havilland's not even doing it for – the rights of women she's doing it for everybody which is which is even more astounding in a lot of respects um but that it really makes her a real feminist whether she would want to call herself that or not because yeah. really what feminism is is about equality yeah. for all yeah and she you know, it's not it, just about women it's about everyone yeah and that, and 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 it all comes from the stem of just like i just want to be a actress i don't want to be an ingenue which which also plays into that factor of just like, I don't want to just be a pretty face on screen. I want to actually challenge myself. Right. And, and I think that that, that the legacy that she carries on is 
uh, astounding and 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 can make you cry so much so that she we're going to be actually talking a little more about her when we do the John Houston series because she and John Houston were quite friendly with each other um but she uh retired from acting primarily uh in uh the, in the 80s um uh, but she did return for a movie called I Remember Better When I Paint in, in 2009, uh, and, uh, she, where she narrates the documentary, so she's not really acting. But it is about the importance of art in the treatment of Alzheimer's disease. Um, oh, that's beautiful! Yeah, and then she returned in 2010 to the big screen with the Aspern Papers, um, or she was supposed to because the movie was never made, but it was going to be with James Ivory um, of Merchant Ivory. Uh, and she received the Légion d'honneur, uh, in France, um, uh, in 2010, um, uh, because she made France her home. Um, two weeks before her 101st birthday de Havilland was appointed the Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire. And, uh, she, uh, in the birthday honors for services to drama by Li Queen Elizabeth II, she is the oldest woman to ever receive the honor. And I will say, royal family should have done that fucking sooner. But anyway. Oh. <laughs> um, and uh, she called it the most gratifying of uh, birthday presents uh, to receive that honor. Uh, she didn't, uh, uh, but she, she would go on for another three years. On July 22nd, 2020, just last year, she died at the age of 104 of natural causes. Um, she Wait, she had. Just, that's oh, how I want to go. Yeah. <laughs> Being made a dame. <laughs> of natural causes, honestly. I want to be a dame in Paris, having fought for rights for human beings yes. across the planet from abuse. <laughs> Again, yes, that is my my goal is literally to be remembered as, as exactly as that. So she lived an amazing life. Yep. And you will, and you will be on the right track with it, given the legacy that she's provided, the groundwork that she's provided. I, I'm a big f a believer in the stepping stones uh, that you see in films and in film history as the guiding points to where we can go today. Olivia de Havilland took this in a direction of absolute change. Like you don't do this anymore. The this whole contract nonsense with actors yeah. like this. Yeah, um, and it's quite beautiful that she made such a uh, took such a stance in a time when women still didn't really have um a voice and she won and it helped people for such a long time and yeah and then also to just see the kind of roles that she was able to play even after she won this this being one of them because i mean yeah without that would we have had such this this such remarkable role and you know as i think i've said a million times in this this episode, like, I just am really sad that it's so hard to watch nowadays, because regardless of some of the the content being, um, you know, dated and, and such, uh, it's still just such a remarkable performance. And it's something that I know I'm going to take into, you know, I'm going to keep this movie in mind as I'm working on my own, because I think the direction in it and the acting in it and just holistically as a movie it's very very well done and i really really did love it so yeah. and and on that 
inviting me to do that. Oh, of course. I'm more than happy to do it. I want to really quickly wrap up Mitch Lyson too, though. Um, he could continue to direct uh, up into 1967 with his last movie being Spree with Transamerican, uh, the documentary. Um, his last narrative film was The Girl Most Likely for RKO. Uh, it's a Technicolor film with Cliff Robertson or Cliff Uncle Ben Robinson for all you Spider-Man fans out there. Um, and uh, he would also direct episodes of Shirley Temple's storybook, uh, The Twilight Zone, and The Girl from Uncle. Um, and I haven't, I wasn't able to find more information on it, but he ended up becoming a nightclub owner later in his life. Um, and he would die of heart disease in 1972 at the age of 74. Uh, his, uh, only Academy Award nomination was for art direction for the movie Cecil B. DeMille made called Dynamite. But this was before he was even a director and, Hold Back the Dawn was nominated for Best Picture, but he didn't receive the nomination. I am upset that Mitch Lyson never won an Oscar because there is a delicate touch that to each his own has that I think this is a movie that Criterion needs in their pockets ASAP. This is a movie that they need. I would agree. Yeah, they, they can... Yeah, the 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 to to each his own Blu-ray ASAP commission the 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 De Havilland the the De Havilland media decision right here, guys. We need it. Yeah, the decision. The decision is yes. Give me that fucking Blu-ray. <laughs> I yeah. I want it too because like also like and part of the thing with it being outdated and having those outdated elements. I'll say this out loud for anybody who might be listening that has any voice whatsoever. More than likely they're not. I, I know that my reach is absolutely limited, but if we're allowed to have multiple reissues of Gone with the Wind at a consistent basis, there is no reason that to each his own shouldn't have a standard Blu-ray region one or multi-region, however you want to do it in this country or even in the UK or in France. So I, I, it needs to happen. Uh, on that note, Olivia, thank you so very much for coming yeah. coming on board to talk about uh, th this film and for also enduring the internet hiccup of the century. <laughs> Out of the century, there's definitely been more historic. Uh, oh yeah, that's right. That, that, that. <laughs> you're being very uh, melodramatic. Oh oh oh, maybe I should get my own movie directed by Mitch Lyson. <laughs> Bill Listen, Bill Goodwin can time. play me. That would be an honor. Oh God, I do. I I want Bill Goodwin to play me now. <laughs> By the way, unfortunately, Bill Goodwin passed away twelve years after this movie. Um, yeah, he he um he was actually working towards a, a much more broader acting career. He was in he's uh he's in the the Jolson story and Jolson sings again too. So he, he's got an interesting career. We're not done with Bill Goodwin. He's in a movie called Wake Island that I've never seen before and that I need to see now because I did love him in the movie. That uh, is next list. Yeah, his son Bill Goodwin is still uh, still living. He's a jazz drummer, so that's pretty neat. Oh wow! Yeah, any of this? Yep. But Zach, you're full of all the random facts. <laughs> Bill Goodwin is somebody that uh is somebody that I've known about since I was a kid because of Burns and Allen. Like that 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 voice is unmistakable. Like I could I, I mean I should I'll try to find an episode that you might like and send it to you to just be like, listen to this man sell coffee. <laughs> like, it's please do. It's, it's, I just think, you know, for the audience listening, they need to recognize that Zach 
needs to be on everyone's trivia teams. <laughs> no, 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 no. I've done that with <laughs> you. You remember Brad from Real Nerds? I've done trivia with him. I am subpar compared to him. Um, really? No, well, I'm not surprised that he's very good at it. No, that. yeah, no. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm weird under pressure because I'm like, I, I know what I know. Um, and like things like this, like what we were able to do today, Olivia, I knew about the Havlin's decision. I didn't look into all the specifics on it. And now I had a chance to, because I was able to be like, let's sit down and let's look at this law and how it pertains to things. I knew about the 30 seconds to, to Mars thing, but I had no idea about Johnny Carson. Being yeah. I didn't know about law. Johnny Carson either, but I did know about, um, good old Jared Leto. Yeah. Hey, did you hear about this? Uh, a law, a law uh, set up by Olivia de Havilland benefited me. Hi. Oh, but anyway, the, uh, the bottom line though is, is that Olivia, like I appreciate the compliment, but the, the bottom line is, is that it's, it's incumbent on the guests that I bring to give, uh, to give their portion of the knowledge too. And you're bringing an insight to the film and how it's perceived from a modern context context that, is invaluable to getting people to realize that there's movies out there that you can't find easily unless you, you know, dig in the internet, then you can find something like to each his own. And it gives me a chance to learn more about it because I think that if you don't learn about the negatives and the positives of the past, you don't know what to carry on into the future. Uh, you have that to. That is so well said. Yeah. Yes. And if I can learn a new thing and look dumb on a podcast, then but while learning about it, I will be more than happy to. Um, because Listen, I, I don't think you looked or sounded dumb. So no, 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 no. no. Oh yeah, no, no. I didn't think I did today per se, but like in, in terms of like not knowing something right away, like I think it's good to realize that a lot of these shows are dedicated to the idea of like now you can know because there's nothing, there's no barrier stopping you. Like I'm, I would like to be an entry point and then have you go to people like Adam Roach um, and uh, learn more from them, or even Karina Longworth's show. You must remember this. Learn even more. Look into the books of Leonard Malton and Rudy Belmer and really see the rich history behind the industry that we all love, uh, despite how many times it shoots itself in the foot. Um, uh, and uh, so, Olivia, on that note, thank you so very, very much for doing this. Really quickly, I want you to tell people what you're working on so that we can get ready for more Olivia Carmel in our lives. Oh, goodness. Well, you're so nice. Um, what am I working on? Well, I mean, I'm always going to plug my um, poetry book because it needs – Need some more love, um, a how-to guide on surviving your first bee sting, um, hoping to continue writing poetry and one day put out another another volume um, of poetry. But um, until then, I'm still a filmmaker and I'm still working on some scripts and, um, you know, maybe actually even using to each his own as as a as some inspiration for for one of them. Um, now that I've seen it and love it so much. Um, but yeah, just working on that, helping some other filmmakers get their their films off the ground and wrapping up um, the post-production of my first uh, feature film. So yes, which I'm very excited. I'm excited to see that. I know some people who are involved in it that I'm very, very excited to see what you how you utilize them. So and me too. The- it was a very, very tiny, tiny crew. Um, a tiny cast and an even tinier crew. And so I'm still shocked to this day that we pulled it off um but yeah i'm, yeah. I'm excited for you to see it too yep i'm i can't wait it's gonna be a lot of fun corinne for, for you're you're not corinne you're olivia you keep calling me corinne zach <laughs> you're not you're the villain 
<laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, but anyway, um, no, I'm excited to see this because I have uh, I have been fortunate to watch uh, m- a, good, a good chunk of different parts of your work, whether reading the book How to Guide on Surviving Your First Beasting or uh, I'll tell people about the I don't know if it's available. If you if you want, I can put the link to it in there. But the documentary you did on um, one of the Holocaust survivors was very, very affecting. Um, and- oh, thank you. Yes, that was um, a family friend. Um, that was somebody that he knows, and he wanted to capture a story. Um, Sam is a really remarkable person. Um, you know, he's obviously been through a lot, and that is a an unfortunate part of our world history that definitely needs to be um, preserved so that we do not forget and do not repeat things like that. Um, but you know, I, I, yeah, I will, I'll send the link because I'd love for other people to hear Sam's story. He's very remarkable. And for all that he went through and experienced, he's very, um, yeah, he's a very compassionate, gentle soul and, um, is very forgiving really of, of the people that kind of enacted, you know, hor- horrific things on him and his family and loved ones. So yep. Yeah, and it's a yeah. lesson, and it's a lesson that we at the Ballyhoo here are are going to be continuing to expound so that people don't forget, and we have the power of film to teach us that. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to let you go for the evening so that you can enjoy a nice evening thinking about <laughs> Olivia de Havilland's wonderful legacy. This is going to. This is going to think that a lot. <laughs> yep. This is going to wrap it up for this episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. You can find out more about us at the bottom of the show. But until next time, good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Pod and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. That's R-E-V-U-E. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series, Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. <laughs>